team that was a uh, a uh, uh, St. Louis uh, team, farm team. Well, I think he was national because uh, he had that. I think he was part of the national package for NBC. Yeah, it was him and Pee Wee Reese. Right. And then, of course, Dizzy had his own radio show for a while called Dizzy Dean Radio Show. Oh, really? Yes. And. Now, now I hear that he was a bit of a jerk, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have some Dizzy Dean radio shows. Really? Really. Oh, that could be interesting. There aren't a lot, but I do have some. Are you interested? Yeah. Have to answer a question. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like it's so easy to get along with. Okay. The nurses are just, my wife, you know, she's an RN. Uh-huh. And she threatened me. She said, I want to hear that you're a good patient. Because apparently I'm not always a good patient. So I'm trying extra hard to be sweet and nice. I can believe You know, they, these people stick needles in me and stuff. So I need to get along with them. You need to get along. You know, you want to get along with the people that come with you at needle with needles, because you want them to use the sharp ones. Well, you want them to use them in the right places. In the right places. In the right places. Okay, here's your question. Um, S. C. Johnson made the wax, Johnson's wax. That was the advertiser that supported Fibber McGee and Molly. Where, right. was it, where was it located? And it's still there. And it's still there, yeah. And a building designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. That's right. That's right. I'm doing I'm doing a Walden. <laughs> doing a Walden? Oh, you listen. I have no earthly idea where it is. It's right where it was. <laughs> that was good. I think we ought to give you credit for the um yeah, because he knew, that, he knew it was Frank Lloyd Wright that designed the building. I think that's good enough. That's... I think we ought to give him credit for it. I think so. Okay. The building is in Racine, Wisconsin. Okay. And you want oh. Izzy Dean. I w we once went to Barcelona, Spain, and checked into the hotel, this hotel, and the place was full of people there for a Johnson's Wax convention. <laughs> no kidding. That is... Apparently, you know, 40 years ago, Johnson Wax was doing very well in Spain. So. <laughs> that is... You, could, you couldn't get a telephone line out or anything. It was crazy. <laughs> that is really funny. Well, I will, get, I will get Dizzy Dean out to you. Your job is to get better and feel better. And... I, you know, I feel really good. That's the odd part about it, you know. Uh, well, but, uh, give us a call next week and let us know how you're doing. Well, then maybe I can earn some uh, big shows. Some big shows. Meantime, I'll send you Dizzy Dean. That'll make your ears happy. It will, and, I, and I'll, I've got, what is that, 18, 24 hours of this one station? That, that'll be very interesting. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, y'all be good. All right. Okay, see. you too. I think, I think you will. You bet. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye, Richard. Pretty good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gosh, we got a call from the hospital. Yeah. 
five calls in a row. Can we make it six? Can seven, we make it six? Seven one four. Five four five two zero oh, seven one. The, the phone for me, Patricia, and I haven't started the show yet. And you're calling. I have to say something real fast. We're having such a good time with so many people. Please join our family. Surely we have. I know we have people out there who listen every week, or may have just found us tonight. And we haven't heard from anybody new recently. And if you call for the first time, you don't even have to answer a question. I will send you you would like to have. Hello there, you're on air. Yeah, that must be a first. <laughs> this occurred again to disagree with something that, um, what was this? Was that Richard? Huh? Richard from Dallas, yep. Said, he said that he did not think that the Tallulah lines were uh, written for her. And as far as I know, the answer is yes, everything was written. Because I just heard an interview with Goodman Ace yesterday mm -hmm. on one of the Richard Lamparsky shows. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about writing the, show, writing the lines and how it was to work on that show. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know that they, they wrote some very tight scripts, but I have listened to shows where, uh, as with Fibber McGee. Yes. They go off script because of goof-ups or somebody came in who wasn't expected. Or right, right. Auntie screwed up, because, and he could do that with his words uh, fairly frequently. He would mess up some words, and she would come in with ad-libs, so, and she was very good at ad-libbing, and I think that's what he was referring to. That's what was in my head. And yeah, I don't know, but I, I, I mean, yeah, there is some of it that, I mean, if it, if it, if it was, I mean, it would be very interesting to know what was off the cuff and what was what was scripted because it really is kind of difficult to tell and i mean with her you, you know you really can't tell what she knew and what she didn't it, it, that's why it shows you how important um writers are for example mary jane hickby who wrote a book yes called tune in tomorrow right. famous soap opera queen in the book i understand she read part she was totally shocked to see B. Crosby work with a script because she remember listening to him on the show and he sounded so easy going and everything on the air when she worked the show uh -huh. she was so surprised and she realized that Carol Carroll the one of the early day great writers knew and figured uh, being temperament and wrote to that style that way it sounded like it was ab lip yes and of course she was married to Guy Sorrell That's who right. was one of my favorite readers uh, actually, I liked her in a lot of the stuff. The Bard list is not has not put up much of her stuff. To uh, in fact, I wish that they would somehow stumble across the Tune In Tomorrow and be able to put it on the site. I would love to hear it. I had never read the book, so I would love to hear the book. She I could... read it. Yes, I read it years ago. Yeah. Just wanted to let you know, by the way, that I did find Unbroken. Terrific. So it will be in your Dropbox, and I have sent Patricia an early Christmas present. And if she has questions, she can write to me. Hey, and I, um, I sent you a late... I, I just got it. I just got it. But um, I just wanted to, like I said, I was listening since I was uh, surprisingly listening to the, the Goodman Ace uh, thing yesterday. And they were talking about that and how some of the lines got started. And, and basically, again, writing for the temperament of... Of the of the people, and he said, in a way, I mean, it, it was very difficult work, but it was also, I mean, it made it sound like, 
you know, like it was live mm-hmm. and, and, and unscripted. And I, like I said, I thought it was a, a better show than a lot of people gave it credit for. And um, the uh, Radio Archive place, I don't know how many of them they have for download, but you can get them in, in better sound, although some of them are in pretty good sound as it is. Mm-hmm. And I hope they find some more of them because I thought it was a very interesting show. Yeah, yeah pretty much I think the first season survived, and I know what, two or three shows from the second season. Right, that's, that's, like that. what's, that's what I, mm-hmm. there, there might be more around somewhere, but who knows. No. Anyway, just wanted to let you guys know that, and... Um, Walden, your, your book will be in there later this evening. I appreciate that. And um, so I will talk to you later. All right. Bye. Take care. 714-545-2071. If we're saying, if you're a new listener, give us a call. You get to have double scoop of ice cream if you give us a call. Um, yeah, Walden supplies the ice cream. I supply the radio show. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to tap Walden for the ice cream. Yeah. We'd really love to hear from you. And please join our family. Give us a call, 714-545-2071. Or you could send us an email, or you could do both. My email address is floridawriter at hotmail.com. Florida and writer like with a pencil, W-R-I-T-E-R, Florida writer at hotmail.com, and Walden is Walden Hughes, that's W-A-L-D-E-N Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at yesterdayusa.com. 714-545-2071, our number, give us a call. I, I have two things to say really fast, really fast. I have, to, I have to talk fast. We've got so many calls tonight. I know. Oh, cool. I love it when people call. Okay, the theme is your favorite cartoon strip or your favorite cartoon character or both. Mm-hmm. Only have one. Can't have two or ten. Gotta have one. Did Patricia have one? Um, I'll have to think about that. Uh, Gee whiz. Uh, yeah, I would say Snoopy. I, I like Snoopy. All right. You know, Snoopy is my favorite. Okay. I really like Snoopy. Okay. Had such great philosophy. Okay, and the second thing is what I was making reference to with Kurt when I said your late Christmas in July is up there. Kurt asked if I knew where Lum and Abner shows were available, and they have disappeared from the Internet. However, I have them. I have a pile of Lum and Abner shows, and we talked about how it would be easiest for him, and he said, well, if I could upload them and allow him to download, then he could create his own DVDs rather than mine dropping them onto a disc and sending them to him. Which means I have 24 volumes of Lum and Abner shows that are available on the internet that I put up there, and I would be very happy to share the links to those files. Each file, I don't know how many shows are in there, but each file I think is... I 1,400 shows, something like that. It, it, it's about that. That yeah. would be about right. Yeah. Some of them, most of them are 15 minutes. Some of them are half hour, mm-hmm. and some of them are a lot better than others. The sound quality is not perfect all the way through, but for the overwhelming majority of them, it, it's good enough to sit back and have a good time with them. So each file is... 300 megabytes, and there are 24 files up there, so you'll have to plan on spending a little bit of time there. But they will be there for about 30 days, and if you send me an email, I will email the links 
to you, and you can take them down at your leisure. And the email address is floridawriter at hotmail.com. And if you're new, it would be a great introduction. I also have Jack Benny Christmas shows up there. So if you'd like Jack Benny Christmas shows, I will give you a link to that as well. Hey, we're offering a new service. This is a new service. It took forever to get the Lum and Abner goodies up there. It takes quite a while. The problem is not the service that's up there. The problem is that Internet service providers do not allow uploads at any kind of a reasonable rate. I was at 75 kilobytes per second for... 1,400 shows, so it took a very long time to get them up there. The rest of um, my collection will not be quite as difficult, but um, it's up there. Kurt downloaded them. All of the links now work. There were two that were the links. One link didn't work, and one, one file was corrupted, but they're okay now, all 24, and I would love to be able to share them. be terrible to do all of that work and not be able to share it. So. And we want to mention our friend Donnie Pickford, his... Uh cartoon strip of Love and Abner is still out. Weekly, a new one comes up. And I guess the best way to go look for that would be over the Love and Abner Society website. You can find links to the, I think it's the first Arkansas Press. I'm trying to remember the, the newspaper that runs I'm the... I'm trying to remember it myself. And, I'm, and I'm, I think if you go to lumenandabnersociety.org I think that's the website where the fan, the, uh, the fan club uh-huh. is, and I think you can see a link from there. And it says, announcement, previous sold out back, da-da-da, links, and Lumen Abner comic strip. Yes, it's on the front page, Lumen Abner comic strip. So you can see Donnie, and he'll have a new one up to the Sunday. Uh-huh, every Sunday. And my gosh, the artwork is just fabulous. If you look at photos of the pair, who starred in movies, by the way, and that's where the photos come from. In addition to the radio show, they had, I believe it was six movies? Seven, I think. Seven? Mm-hmm. And they were funny, but I, I, again, as with Sibber McGee and Molly, once I knew what they looked like, it took some of the magic away. I had to work on getting the magic back up again. But anyway, when you look at these two in the movies and then look at the artwork that Donnie puts in the cartoons, it is just a the likenesses. So he's been working on the cartoons, and they appear in the Sunday paper. John and Down Journal is also available. Let's see here. All right. Click for the latest news on the comic strips. Um, Mom and Abner. Chester Law. Oh, it's, oh, gosh. The latest one is on the, um, on the website, on the Lum and Abner, Lum and Abner Society.org. And the latest cartoon is up there, and you can. They also have audios to go with it. So the audio cartoon is there. You can listen as well as look and read, which is just a super service. So take a look. It's really good stuff. And I've got a mess of shows that I would love to share. So if you just let me know you'd like them. What have you been listening to this week, Patricia? I beg your pardon. What have you been listening to this week? sent me a book, an audio book, uh-huh. called The Help. Oh, I got a copy of it, too. Have you listened to it? Not yet. The narration is superb. Okay. 
absolutely superb. So I am enjoying that. Good. What else did I listen to? I listened to a Phil Harris and Alice Faye this week. Ah. Yeah. I, I realized that uh, I had, I, I'll erase that. I'll start again. I had a while back, maybe six months, eight months ago, come across some Phil Harris and Alice Faye. And I looked at them and I thought, you know, there are titles there that I don't recognize. And I thought I had a pretty decent collection. So I downloaded the whole thing and cross-referenced, and there must have been 30 shows that I did not have. Yeah, the ones are coming out. Oh, really? Yes. Is what it is? Yes. Okay, well... That's right. We're up to, uh, into, I think, almost into 1952. Uh, a lot of new ones have been coming out. Oh, wow, that that is so cool. Yeah. I love that show. Yeah. It really is a great show. And... It is a great show because one of my favoriteest people is in that show. The one and only Elliot Lewis. Elliot Lewis. Yeah. Played Remley, the kind of laid-back, dopey guy who just assumed everybody was as dopey as he was. Except he was smart. I mean, he wasn't dumb. He just was one of... He was the man who came to dinner. He would show up and not go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Among other things, um, they figured out how to get Mr. Scott's Cadillac in a swimming pool, which is my favorite. That, that's my favorite episode, <laughs> when, they, when the Cadillac fell in the swimming pool, and they, they managed to do that one. So if anybody would like Phil Harris and Alice Faye, if you call and answer a question, I will send you Phil Harris and Alice Faye. Maybe you can look out there, Patricia, and see if any of the record albums uh, Elliot produced and wrote were out there. That'd be fun to see. What What did he tell uh, about them? He was Gordon Jenkins at the background host for Capitol. Uh, he created a backdrop scene on Manhattan Towers. You know, he and Kathy would play the roles so people living in New York. And he had two other called Happy Anniversary and Happy Birthday. Manhattan Towers, I'm confident I have heard at least two shows. Yep. Probably. I don't know the red. I don't recognize the other two. Yep, but these are records that he did for Capitol Records. Ah, okay. So keep your eye out. See, see if that. Okay. Might. Okay. Be out there somewhere. I will do that. Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. I've taken a nap. I'm wide awake. Want your call? We're in trouble tonight. No. Walden has had a nap. nap. I pulled. One of my really awful shows. <laughs> did you get my really awful show? I sure do. Poor Walden. I, I sent him this stuff at the last minute, and he always manages to accommodate it. Thank you. You bet. You're a good person. I guess you, well, I'm with you. I'm a happy camper, so we're good. Uh, I'm so spoiled. Yeah, you should I'm so spoiled. I have... Oh, I've got a lot of stuff. I'm going to be hopping back and forth here. But we also have my try-to-stump Walden question for later and a baseball question. Hey, you noticed, folks, you didn't get around to any of them last week? No, I didn't have to do that homework. (laughs) 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 Um, I was able to transfer them over. Did we get to play the show about... Nope. Fibber's friend? Nope. So we've still got that one? We still do. Oh, goodness, okay. So if we run out of stuff... Uh Uh-huh. Stuff like that there. Uh-huh. We, we have another super show. That's uh-huh. Okay. I've got oodles of new stuff about rationing during World War II. But one of the neat things that I discovered today was, of course, sugar 
was rationed, and yeah. well, it, it was it was really precious stuff. It was being sent overseas. It wasn't that we didn't have any. It's that we didn't keep any. We sent it overseas, made sure our troops had what they needed, which was um, the genesis of rationing. It, it was not so much that we didn't have. It's that we had and we were shipping overseas to our troops to keep their equipment running, to actually create their equipment, manufacture equipment for them. We didn't have cars, but they had tanks and that kind of stuff. But one of the consequences of not having enough sugar was that popcorn sales tripled. Isn't that fun to know? Popcorn tripled. Popcorn. Americans ate three times as much popcorn as they did at other times. Jeez, so you, and it ate them will help, will help, uh, what, what do you put, was it molasses? What would you make popcorn balls out of? Oh, um, corn syrup. I guess so. I don't know, would that count as sugar? That's what I'm wondering. I have to look that one up. Caro syrup. K-A-R-O. Caro or Caro, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But I'll have to look up Caro syrup. I never even thought about that. It's... It's used as a sugar substitute. Mm -hmm. wonder if that got shipped overseas, too. I don't know. Yeah, I don't ever recall hearing about it as a substitute for wartime foods. Hmm. And I have some useless but fun information and my more information. Wait till you hear about John Barrymore. Hello, Dale. You're on the air. Patricia, you are Walden. You know the show On Stage with Kathy and Elliot Lewis? Yes, and it's a great series. Yeah. Great series. Uh, Patricia, you got any of those? I, d I didn't hear. I... On Stage by Elliot and Kathy Lewis. It's a radio series that came on in 1953. No, I don't have yeah. any. Okay, good. I'll send you some. They're good shows. Yeah. They're really good shows. And um, so don't try to get them. <clears throat> You'll get it in your... Your Pony Express mail in a couple of weeks. So. Pony Express, that is... Oh, I should ask you a trivia question. <laughs> See, you can answer it. Anyway, um, just checking, Patricia. Want to make sure that your your stuff builds up to a good capacity because you're so generous in letting all these people answer trivia questions. <laughs> so um, we'll get it to you, okay? You don't make me answer anything. I don't even have to earn it. You just send them. Oh, well, you, well, because you've earned a lot you, just by being Santa Claus uh, okay. at age 78, you know, so you, you should get something in return. So anyway, we'll, we'll be listening some more. Aloha. 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 On stage. I did not know that. It's a great series. It's very eclectic. Um, it starred Elliot Kathy Rose. Uh -huh. And a stock company, and had a, they had friends who were great writers, like uh, the guys who wrote, who produced um, oh, uh, Sam Spade and different series, and they tried new and different things for radio at that time. Okay. And it was, it was like a stock company, Elliot and Kathy were the two leading stars. Uh-huh. And it's a very fine, up-class, uh, you know, upscale kind of show. Ah, okay. All right, so yeah. it, it was like a stage production, only it was on radio. Uh-huh. 
How interesting. And it was all radio scripts, of course. So it wasn't yeah. adapted. It was just new ideas, new things that they tried. Yeah. You know what was surprising for me to learn was that Elliot Lewis, as fine a comedian as he was, didn't even consider himself an actor. He always considered himself a writer, but certainly not a comedian. Nope. He said he was, you know, he wasn't funny. He wasn't a comedian. And I'm just on the floor when I hear this guy <laughs> as Remley. Um, he, he just had such a self-effacing approach to his life. He had no concept of how good he was at how many things. He just didn't. He, he, well, he created the concept of um, Crime Classic. That was his. Mm-hmm. He, he was the producer, director of Broadway's My Beat. Uh, he ran suspense for several years. You know, still, still while he was a writer, you know, a writing and acting. Uh-huh. He was definitely one of the great Renaissance people of radio. Oh my gosh, he just went on and on and on and yeah. on and on and and wrote a highly successful detective series. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't recall how many were in there. I, th- I think nine. Was it nine? Nine or so. Yeah, that, that would be about right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and they were good. So they're on my list. They're they're on my to-do list. And and he only made to age 70. I mean, just think. I mean, his life was a, a, a young man, to think about it. Nowadays, you know, 70 is not that old. 70, they're still working. Yes. And, of course, Kathy died very young. Very, very young. Um, from cancer. They had divorced before she died. Right. I guess they, they still have, uh, I, I don't know, but... I hesitate to say a warm relationship. I don't know that it was, but there was no acrimony between them. I don't think. No, no. I mean, because John Dunning asked him, and he he said Kathy was an interesting gal. Not everybody quite knew her. Mm-hmm. She was a hard person to figure out, and not and she's not mean by a personal whatever. It's just uh, yeah, the enigma. And that's really funny because it's typically the guy. Someone is saying that about mm-hmm. didn't really understand him or didn't know what was going on on the inside of him. And in her case, it was Kathy, not Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a band singer, everybody, before she got to be a radio actress and a terrific, terrific radio actress. Just one of the recognizable voices that you could recognize easily. Every time you could hear, you could tell that was Kathy Lewis. Mm-hmm. And a couple. Yeah. 714-545-2071. Call and let me know if you want a, um, Woman Abner. I was going to say Amos and Andy. I could do Amos and Andy next time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pretty huge file as well. But um, Woman Abner, for free. For free for the asking. <laughs> but you got to call and answer a question. Sounds fair. It's a great deal. Yeah, I think so. Great deal. Like, who are you? If you're a first-time caller, that's your question. Yes, you can get called. I'm Joe from Montana or Sarah from Nebraska. You automatically want a prize. Sounds like a deal to me. Can't beat that. Sounds like a deal to me. So we've got all this really good stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was going to tell you, oh, you know what else I've got? Ooh, ooh, this one is really good. We used to do that. There was was some character who did that. You and I have puzzled about this at different times. When we talk about Franklin P. Adams, Franklin 
about his 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 middle name. I was there. Franklin Pierce. Franklin Pierce Adams. Uh huh. Uh, so it's Franklin Pierce Adams. Adams. And he actually wrote the Conning Tower under his initials, FPA, which right. is they referred to him as FPA. That's how people knew him. Yep. And he wrote this. Um, this column, it was a very well-respected column, and he, let's see, he wrote, oh, where's the Cunning Tower? Which which paper? He wrote everywhere. Uh, well, I think it was the one in the New York, was it the New York, one in the New York American Journal, or one of those, um, it, it was not the New York Times, it was one of those, well, I think it's up on Wikipedia, Patricia, if you got it. I'm looking at this, I've, I've got a uh, New York columnist. Um, when he left, even Mrs. Roosevelt got in there during its long run. The Conning Tower featured, let me see, Conning Tower, New York World. Oh, he, he left the telegram to go to the New York World and hop back and forth. I guess it was the New York Post. Does that sound right? I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. He, I was just thinking, New York had, what, six to eight papers? Oh, gosh. He was, he was just all over the place. And... Um, and it just extraordinarily popular, and he wrote this column with his acerbic wit and his good writing. He, he put actual article-type writing in his column, and he also invited other people to make contributions, and I'll go through the list of, of contributors later. But you and I have puzzled about where the heck did he get the name Conning Tower from? Absolutely. I know. Hooray! I know. I know. I know. I I keep telling myself one day I'm going to be rewarded for having the television on in the background. I don't know if it was a history or a military station I had on today, and they were talking about in World War II the U-boats, uh, the underwater boats that the Germans had, the submarines, and how elusive they were, um, and if they were damaged sufficiently that they weren't going anywhere, they booby-trapped the submarines so that they would never be captured. Nobody would ever get their hands on a U-boat. And one of the captains, one of the commanders, not a captain, excuse me, one of the commanders of a warship said, we're not only going to sink U-boats, we're going to take one home. And everybody laughed at them, and they took one home. They, they disabled it. It popped up. They got to it before they set the detonators. Um, the crew was out waiting to be rescued, and they actually got one of these things home. And what made it particularly interesting was that it was loaded with 1,700 documents and two of their coding machines, COD oh. code machines. Uh-huh. And they, when when they notified Washington what they had, Washington went ballistic because they said, you've got to keep this quiet. Don't let anybody know about this because they didn't want the Germans to change their code. They were two days before Normandy. Oh, wow. What a story. And yeah. What a if, story. If the Germans knew that their code had been confiscated, they would have instantly changed to another system. And we had cracked, we, you know, big me, the Americans had cracked the code, so they knew what the messages were. And if the Germans found out that their, their code 
not only had been cracked but had been confiscated, we would have been in the soup. Mm. And so that's what made it particularly important. But they were interviewing people, as they do, uh, um, survivors and people who were there and historians. And one of them, I, I did a double take. I swore he used the word conning. And it turned out that he was on the conning tower. I looked it up. The conning tower was the highest point on a submarine or a warship that allowed the greatest vantage point. They could see oh. could see as much as could possibly uh-huh. be seen from that particular vessel, and it was typically an armored area because there were key people, like the, the commander of a ship would be up there and, and looking and uh, surveying and evaluating, but it was the highest vantage point so that the person could see as far as possible from that particular vessel. And that would make a whole lot of sense. Franklin P. Adams was writing a column called The Conning Tower, and he was the be-all, see-all. He was the eyes of New York. So Great. now it makes sense. So Great. I found out what The Conning Tower is. Wow. Are you proud of me? I am. Oh, thanks. Oh, man. I mean, gee, Willis. Oh, man. Wow. And let's see, there was a big fuss here. Okay, the arch rival. Okay, this is from Time Magazine, March 15th, 1937. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, one day, there was no Franklin P. Adams column. So we can talk about it later. Alrighty, we'll turn it up. Hello there, you're on air. Well, hello everybody, how are you? How are you doing? Hey, how are you? <laughs> how is everyone? Oh, we are great. And people have been asking about you. How are you? Um, I'm doing much better, thank you. It was a long haul, but I'm doing just just so much better, thank yeah. God. Knock on wood. Oh. Other than that, you know, everybody has their trials and tribulations and their little setbacks, but we overcome them the best we can and we move forward. It is so good to hear from you. Well, I'm glad I was missed. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're missed. <laughs> got two CDs here for you, and I said over the last few weeks, I said, Lucy has to call in because I got two CDs. I found two shows for her, <laughs> and I don't even know what's on them, but the, but the title sounded pretty good. So. Well, then they got to be horror, then. One is, one is titled Suspicion. Do you know what that show is, Walden? Well, consider one of the horror shows that's not all that great, so at least it's a good, at least it'll be a good a good sample. She wasn't really that well, good. Okay. Well, we'll I'll send it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, congratulations uh, on the weather changing in Texas. I know. Isn't that something? How's the weather in New York? Are you guys getting the heat wave up there still? Um, we no. It's it's really broken a lot. Okay. As a matter of fact, we're it's pouring and thundering and lightning right now, and it'll be that way, including up until Tuesday night and then it'll clear again And but we haven't been hitting 100 it finally broke it was brutal awful when it gets to be 100 up there it is awful yeah you can't breathe you can't leave your home is it because of the, humi- because of the humidity that which makes it so bad the, the humidity is horrendous okay. it is so 
stick you can cook soup with it. There's no air movement. There's right. no breeze, there's no wind, it is just stagnant. It is hot, you could take a shower without water. Um, it, it's awful, I know what you're talking about. No, I know you know. It is brutal for anyone with asthma or senior citizens. Forget about it. The hospitals are inundated in the emergency room because people can't breathe. Not everything is air conditioned. New York and the entire Northeast. I, you know, I say New York because you and I talk about New York. But um, from Mason-Dixon Line North, it's not. A matter of routine that every single house has air conditioning not every single apartment has air conditioning it just isn't routine so even when it gets to a million squillion degrees down here people have air conditioning that does not happen up there right right even the even the school systems in Florida there they have air conditioning yes now schools here no open the window take a deep breath cough a little bit and good luck to you <laughs> I do understand what you're talking about. I mean, the, the libraries and the banks <laughs> do, do great business during that kind of weather. I mean, the libraries are air-conditioned and so are the banks, but, I mean, you can't go to sleep in a bank. No, I'll tell you who else does a wonderful business. The, the malls. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Older people yeah. will get in their car and go to the mall and just sit on the benches in the mall. Have And this is what cracks me up. Now, you go to the mall. And you have the elderly there, and they'll do their walk three times around the mall for exercise. God bless them. But for the most part, they're there for the air conditioning. But what kills me is they'll order a hot cup of coffee. <laughs> it makes no sense to me why you would order a hot cup of coffee on a hot day you're trying to escape instead of drinking something nice and cold. It's me. I know. And... and <laughs> So before we get hit real bad, if the lightning is really getting bad outside, so I have a rule that I don't talk on the phone during a storm. But I just wanted to let you know, I'm here, I'm still alive, I still do listen when I can get the chance, but uh, if, I, if you don't hear from me, you have my email address, you can drop me a line and, or any, and anything, you know. But uh, I did miss you for a, quite a long time, I know how long I've been away. We miss and uh, okay. I have all good news. My son finally got married. Hooray. Okay. Hallelujah. <laughs> After seven years of being with them, being together with Carla and having a two-year-old son, they finally decided to tie the knot, and that was a big relief off of me because I'm still, like, old school, you know, get married, then have the kids. But today's... People are different, yeah. so you have to go with the flow. But I can finally breathe about that. And I missed you all, and good luck to everybody listening, and good health, and continue listening, and I'll try to call back again when it's not such a storm going on outside. Okay, well, I'm so glad that you called in. We're going to have a lot of other people who are happy, too. <laughs> well, I missed everyone, too, so God bless everybody. Have a great night. I'll continue listening, but I won't call to answer any questions. <laughs> Go be safe. <laughs> okay? All right, Lucy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there's Lucy from New York. 714-545-2071. We're blessed. We've gotten three of our family members who haven't been, a, been away to call tonight. Yeah. Lucy, Richard, and Tom. There's Tom. three. 
And we need a whole bunch of other people. I should I should get out my hoot list, huh? Uh, I think there's a good possibility of that. Uh-huh. Uh, so, good, good possibility. We haven't heard from Dan or Dennis here in the last couple of weeks. You, need, you guys need to check in here pretty soon. I've, I've gotten some emails from Dan. Okay. Hey, what about Dave from Alabama? Probably too late. He's probably taking care of the baby, but, uh, Dave? Dave sent me an email, and I owe him an email. Okay. So we need to hear from Dave sometime. I hope so. When he's up taking care of the baby, maybe. <laughs> maybe he can call, or when he, when he put the book aside, maybe he can give us a call on that. And tell me that I'm forgiven for not having, not having replied yet to oh. now. I heard from Rich in New Jersey. Okay. So he's okay. Good. Who else? Who else? Who else? Who else is Charlie? Charlie in Seattle. Give us a call in a month or so. That's right. So give us a call, Gary, up there. I know we. I, in fact, I tried to call you, Gary, up in Washington a few weeks ago. You weren't home, so give us a call. Uh, who else is out there that we haven't heard from? Look, got to be my hoot list here. Where is my hoot who, 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 who list here? Go back one extra week here. My hoot list. Hoot, 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 well, yeah, that's a, who did it? Who done it? Who done it? Did it, yeah. The hoot list, that's a new one. I bet Patricia coined that one. Who else would have come with a hoot, hoot list? I've not heard anybody else <laughs> spell, so I, I'm sure. So. Please tell me somebody else. <laughs> okay, here's my hoot list. John in Florida. Oh, right, yeah, we haven't heard from him. No, Maurice in Washington, D.C. Yes, that's been a while. Ken in Bakersfield, California. Yes. Bob in Wisconsin. That's right. Jerry in Washington. Yeah. Cliff in Ohio. Cliff, that's right. Candy uh, from St. George, Utah. Yeah. We only heard from her once. Time. That's right. So we need to hear from her again. Yes. Ray number two in Illinois. Yeah. Ray from Chicago called. Last week. Last week. Um, but we haven't heard from Ray number two in mm -mm. Chicago. Okay. Richard Stewart called us tonight. Yep. Lucy called us tonight Hooray. on our list. Uh, Bill, who goes by Tar Heel in North Carolina, we heard, haven't heard from him. Yeah. Russell in Dallas, Texas. We have not heard from Casey up in New, New York. Oh, New York. Yeah. We have not heard from him, and I, I'm really I'm concerned about him because he used to call almost every week. And we have not heard from him. And he poor, poor Casey's been going through a lot of uh, health issues, so hopefully he's okay. I hope so. He really had some serious mm -hmm. health issues for a while. Mm -hmm. So our thoughts are with him, and when he can listen again, maybe he'll give us a call. We in Seattle, you just mentioned him. Yep. Jerry in Maryland called us. That's right, last week. Uh -huh. Leonard is feeling better, but I don't think he's been able to listen. Okay. Rich in New Jersey, I told you I got an email from him. Good. Um, Charles from New Jersey called us last week. Good. Good. And David in Alabama. Good. My fault for not writing back uh, to his email, but I did hear from him. So, phew, our family is doing pretty well. That's pretty uh, good. We still have a number of family members we have not heard from, so... 714-545-2071. That's our hotline number. Give us a call. Even our cold line number. That's true. Patricia served cookies there in the kitchen. And chocolate chip. Yes, she only makes chocolate cookies. So if you call, she'll just email it to you. So just, just expect that. Excuse me? Well? 
I don't cook. <laughs> I went on strike years ago. <laughs> well, it's not true. I, you know, for cookies, my, I might consider making cookies. I know. Well, I mean, we we got the turkey roaster oven. We can always have a turkey for dinner. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I had to break my rule and cook a turkey one time. <laughs> I broke my own record. Oh, well, you can always keep keep it intact. 714-545-2071. And if we don't get a call, I might play a... Uh, I might play a little bit of some news today. We're, we're 66 years ago, the anniversary of the end of World War II. Today, August the 14th. Remind everybody, I will be late tonight. I'll probably be close to three hours late. But I'll be here. Going to, going to the B.B. King concert tomorrow. So, uh, that will be fun. You will come back with some reports for us? Oh, I sure will. Very cool. I sure will. That is very, way cool. Yeah, yeah. I got to give you some Franklin P. Adams information here. Okay. This is from March 15, 1937. Yes. The arch conservative New York Herald Tribune surprised its readers last week. He was working for the Tribune. That, that answers the question. <laughs> um, the arch conservative New York Herald Tribune surprised its readers last week by changing its typeface. Oh, that wasn't him. To a bigger and bolder cut. Last week, Herald Tribune readers were further astonished. When the paper suddenly, and with no explanation, dropped the famed conning tower column of Franklin Pierce Adams, known as FPA. Mr. Adams cheerfully explained in a characteristic sentence, quote, they just wanted me to work for less money, whereas I wanted to work for more, end quote. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said. (laughs) But New York newspapermen knew that the difference went deeper than dollars between stolid, self-conscious Mr. Reed and self-satisfied Mr. Adams for 16 years had a quarrel that smoldered. In 1921, FPA left Mr. The New York World in 1931, Ogden Reed did not want FPA back on his paper, which was now the Herald Tribune on any terms, but Mrs. Ogden Reed knew the sheet needed a good column and overruled her husband. FPA returned at $25,000 a year. Uh, this is 1931, $25,000 a year. That was pretty good money. Yeah. I wish I wish Patricia and I was making that combined issue. Mm, boy, I, you know, that was one humdinger of a salary. Yeah. But it was later reduced to 21, how they came up with this number, I don't know, $21,852. How could somebody come up with a number like that? But anyway, that's what it was. was, Okay, so three years ago, FPA asked for a new contract. The essence of this was he wanted a contract. Um, Ogden Reed never signed contracts. So so Franklin Pierce Adams signed his own contract, and his was the only signature on it. Isn't it so good? He he just was so good. By the way, Adams, Franklin Pierce Adams, was one of the regulars every week on Information Please, and he had a wonderful sense of humor and an even better brain. He was probably, would you say, the smartest man in the country at that time? And when, when I say smartest man, I mean this is exclusive of people like the Manhattan Project and Einstein on scientific pro- projects. Well, John Tunin gave him a run for his money. In a lot of ways, I thought t- t- John Tunin, his co- co- cohort, had 
uh, deeper wells. He did. He, he did. Between the two of them, I, I think, in general knowledge, mm-hmm. I think Adams outshone Kieran. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. I'll have to, I'll have to reconsider that. Well, I, I think... I, I think I bet you that John I bet you Franklin was a little more erudite. Mm-hmm. While Tune was a sports writer who had the enormous uh, capacity for uh, wildlife to uh, literature. He was uh, an ornithologist. Yes. Bird person, and he did have a huge body of knowledge. I don't think it was as extensive as Franklin P. Adams. I think his you think so? In other words, you think Turing Library was bigger breath. Turing might have a deeper couple volumes. I, well, I I think so, mm-hmm. but I don't know that for sure. It would be interesting to hear other people's thoughts on this. Anyone who's um, a, an aficionado of information, please. I'm just an appreciator. I don't I don't know. No, I think it's a great observation. Like for example, I. I think I've read an article about uh, Clifton Fadiman. How many books he read a week? He he must have just ate them for breakfast. I it it, it was remarkable, but and you have to. And when you when you're doing book reviews, mm-hmm. you have to pick the best. And when publishers come out with new books every week, you know it's a, it's a big responsibility to put to put out a good book review. It's um. I won't touch. I, I won't touch the Broadway reviews. I, I'll just stick <laughs> with the book reviews. But it, it's a huge responsibility to do a good job on a review, and you have to read the book. There's no fudging on this. You have to read the book. So, it, as you say, his appetite was enormous in terms of books. I don't know how these people. I'm a slow reader. I think because I I savor words as I read. Uh huh. Well, you're more of a writer, so you probably appreciate the mechanics while. He had to look for what's gonna be able he can put together a column, uh-huh. and what he can what he can um, uh, give opinions. Yeah, but at the same at the same time, he had to. I hadn't really thought about this until just now. He had to also look for good writing, good construction, good technique, good storytelling, and. Uh, everything had to be good, so he had to look at all of these points. But I think someone as experienced as he, I am not experienced in that way, I think someone as experienced as he could pick up all of this stuff without concentrating on it. He could just read it and know it was good. It was like 10 to 50 books a week, something something enormous. Here he is. Enormous amount he would read a week. And as I say, I'm a slow reader. I can read fast if I have to get to the end of something. Uh-huh. And I know what I've read. I mean, it's not like I skip pages or anything. I know what I've read. But when I sit down to read for me, I read slowly. Sometimes I go back and I reread paragraphs because mm-hmm. they were particularly good or they were particularly bad. <laughs> you know, and I want to go back and find out why. Uh, it's, it's one of the really neat things about writing is that you learn from other people's mistakes when something was really awful. You know not to do it yourself. You think you you think you would uh, in your writing career? You think you would love to have the challenge of writing a column? I did. And how did you enjoy? Did you enjoy that? I loved it. Uh huh. It, it was not a daily or a weekly. It was a monthly. Right. 
But I was just thinking, just those writers who wrote, who had maybe two or three columns a week. Uh-huh. What do you think? What do you think it was like? Like the deadline, or just the pressure of trying to come up with something new and fresh. And you had experience doing it once a month, but yeah. what, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I was doing other writing as well. I know. I don't know how how you would come up with the equivalent. I think you get into a rhythm with something like that, and it's very easy to latch onto contemporary topics that reach much further than today, either historically or looking into the future. So I think for somebody like Adams, who was very much, um, very much, it established a tempo for himself. I I don't want to say it was easy for him to do it by any means, but I think when he sat down to do something, he was able to do it from start to finish without um, the consternation of writer's block. I I don't think he was the type of person who would get hit by writer's block. Mm-hmm. I don't, think he I don't know survive. that for sure, but that, that's a that's a guess on my part. Yeah. So I think he did very well. Uh, I don't know. How, was it a daily? Did he do a daily column? I don't. I thought it was generally Sunday and another day in the week. I thought, but I could be wrong. It doesn't say here. Go back to Chicago the following year. Let's see. Um, no, nope, it just said columnist. Okay, so even even Mrs. Roosevelt got into the act here. <laughs> <laughs> um, she actually wrote about it. She had a column called My Day. Yep. And she did that since from 1931 to, I think it was 1962. Until she passed away, probably, yeah. She did it even when her husband, I think she missed one day when President Roosevelt died. Yeah. And she wrote about what was happening in the White House and what was happening in her life and what was happening in the world that affected people. Um, Very heartfelt type writing. And I've only read a couple of columns that she wrote, and I was really impressed with what she wrote and how she wrote it and how connected she was to people in the country. You think of the, the president and his... I'll use the word entourage mm-hmm. and his family as being disconnected to some degree from everybody else in the world. Right. She wasn't. She was I, in there. She rolled up her sleeves and she was just part of everybody. Remarkable I think, woman. I think she was a unique first lady that she was almost a separate entity away from the planet. She was. You're, you are so right. Yeah. She was. They, they were two people mm-hmm. together in the White House. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have a problem if she disagreed with the president. She didn't like telling people and about it. They always teased, like the comedian Hope, they, uh, they talked about Eleanor traveling. She traveled. She must have traveled all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And people loved her. Yeah. And with good reason. Yeah. She earned every bit of outpouring mm-hmm. that, uh, that they gave her. Franklin, bless his heart, got tanked. You know, he, he was irascible. He was a real rascal <laughs> to deal with. Um, but Mrs. Roosevelt wrote about the column having disappeared. If this could have been done in a more leisurely fashion, we might have been able to find his column in another paper. <laughs> so that, that says quite a lot. Oh, man. But uh, I want to... Just the opportunity for writers were a lot bigger back then than it was today in some ways. I mean, just I think, think so. I think so because it was a major form of leisure entertainment. Oh, I was just trying to figure out how many newspapers were in New York. Daily newspaper. I think there was at least eight, maybe six. 
daily new paper just in New York and most major town, mm-hmm. or at least a two a two paper town. And not only two paper, but twice a day. Yeah. They put out a morning edition and an evening edition. Yeah. I don't I don't remember reading. Maybe you have heard it at different times when the transition from uh, by. I was going to say by daily. You can't have by daily. Twice a day. When they moved from twice a day to dailies. Mm-hmm. I know in L.A., some papers figured out what were their time. Some just released it in the morning. Some went with the afternoon. You know, but others, as you, as you put, I never thought about it. Others might had two papers a day. Yeah. yeah. Else? If there was something really big going on, we've seen in movies the little guys on the corner yeah. with little newspapers screaming extra, extra, yeah. read all about it type stuff. And they really did that. Yeah. They put, they stopped the presses. The, the phrase stop the presses really did apply. They would stop the presses and put out either a special edition or they would change the front page. I wonder when the last time that's really have happened on a regular basis. It had to be sometime after World War II. I mean, I don't know when we stopped having this special... The extra, extra, the special paper, probably the TV age changed all that. Cable, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We, we don't need to, we, we don't rely on news coming to us from other sources and being fed through newspapers. Mm-hmm. Newspapers get their news from the cables uh, with, with reporters who are doing direct reporting from the trenches. You should think about it in a lot of ways, and before radio... The new paper was the first news that people got. Uh-huh. Ever since radio came, it, uh, new paper was always trying to catch up. Yes. And radio beat them to it. And now TV's even more so. TV and cable and internet. I mean, it, it, people sit down and they say, what's, what's new in the news? I can type in a subject and a list of newspaper articles will come up three minutes ago posted one hour ago, something that's three hours is, is old. Yeah, it's like at Facebook, it's, it's, it's some kind of Google, you know, it'll say one hour ago, or whatever. And that's old. It's just, you know. Updates three minutes ago. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Uh, just, just remarkable. So anyway, that, that's my story for tonight. That was my find for the day. Conning Tower. I know now what Conning Tower is. 714-545-2071. Nobody calls in. We'll take a small break and play a, 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 a breaking news. We, we keep, good, we, good, we keep, good. We keep up, up to date with breaking news. Excellent. Yes. So if nobody calls us in a couple minutes, we're gonna we're gonna break we're gonna break in with the latest news. Very cool. You do the latest news and all of the heavy stuff, and I come up with fun but useless. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're meant to be together. Well, I have a whole bunch of fun but useless for today. Ah, good. We can do that. All right. Besides the popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) That was terrific. That was good. Three times as much popcorn. Now, when you think about that, not only was candy not available, Mm -hmm. so people were looking for snacks, people went to the movies. And they automatically bought popcorn. I get think the percentages of the population went to so much bigger than it was today. Hello there, you're on the air. I waited for you to finish that story because I had to hear the end of it. 
But um, yes, thank you for the conning tower information. And I, I called in, <laughs> I'm bugging you again because I wanted to not let you know what I was listening to. Oh, right. Uh, a show that I think holds up very well mm -hmm. is The Couple Next Door. It does. And, uh, I mean, because adults and children basically are the same. And so I think that the show holds up very well. And, I mean, maybe the prices have changed or whatever, but the situations are still funny for the same reasons that they were funny back then. I got, and I'm glad we got all seven, we got 700 of them. I, yeah, I don't know how many there were all, all told. Well, she wrote... Uh, 10,000 scripts is to count all the shows she wrote. Wow. And Peg Lynch will be at FOTR, everybody, uh, this year. She'll be 95, still performing. She And she even wrote The Little Things. Do we have many? Does anybody have any of, the, many yes. of those? Yes. Um, uh, Ted Davenport sent me on cassettes. And in fact, for the people who may or may not know, in the mid-70s, 1974 or so, uh, we had, they tried a one hour daily for six months, uh, I think by Procter & Gamble for soap operas. Yeah, I know Vanity Fair and The Little Things were two of them. Right, and I forgot the other two. Yeah. And recorded, uh, collectors have taped those, and so, we, uh, uh, so I know there's at least 40 of them out there. Yeah. Um. Well, like I said, it's a show that you can listen to today as easily as you could when it was on, and I think if, if you're looking for a show, and you can also download it. There's three different versions that I saw on the internet. There's one, two, and then just a couple next door. The one and the two have the most episodes, and then the couple next door seems to be, I guess, either what they consider to be highlights or mostly slightly higher quality. But anybody that wants to look for a show that they can enjoy just picking them up, uh, that's you know one that I would look on the internet for because if you go to internetarchive.org, you will find it. Anyway, um, uh, Unbroken is sitting in the box, and so, and but I wanted to let you know because that's a show that I've really enjoyed listening to and that holds up so well. And Patricia, thank you for the information on the conning tower because I didn't know that, and I'm glad to get your take on the on the the columns and stuff. Uh, I've tried to write some stories, and when I started getting sick, I was going to start writing little vignettes about different things, and somehow I started it and did a couple and then didn't, you know, continue with it. But um, I may have to try to get back to it, because I, I used to write what I considered to be humorous little sketches that I would send to people and stuff like that. So, anyway... Thanks for the information, because I've heard of Franklin P. Adams, and I'll let you know about my take on the information, please, but even in the first couple of shows I've listened to, there's just so much stuff that they just know, and it's just incredible. I know, and I sit back and say, how did you know that? Yeah. And of course, they're so much more versed in music than we are. Oh, yes. Oh, no, yes. And all the stuff that we just don't know anymore, because the kids are not taught it. And we don't know it because we weren't taught it, because they don't have time. And, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic is fine, except that they don't read. I was going through, one, one, one time I read um, a book about all the U.S. presidents, and that's why I know the presidents backwards and forwards. And the night part, or there's always a section is what classes they took in college. Yeah. And I'll tell you, 
the classes they took back in the 17, we, in 1800s, we just don't do oh, no. today. It's a yeah. totally different education game. Yes, it is. And that's why, as the years go by, we are less and less educated as a country because the other countries have more time to spend on education, and they do it better. And that's one of the things that I think America's going to pay for. Anyway, I'm going to let you go because I'm, I'm taking up much too much of your time, but had to let you know because I think that your time will be well spent listening to that show. Right. And talk to you later. Okay, Kurt, thanks. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071. Kurt mentioned Goodman Ace earlier as a good writer. Yeah. He and his wife, Jane, wrote Easy Aces, and that was a very good show. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people don't like it because they don't like Jane's voice. For example, I know Kim Bragg can't listen to the show because Jane's voice bothers her. But you can put that aside. It's a, it's a unique segment of Americana. Good, good comedy. And I have a good collection of those shows. No, I don't recall that anyone has ever asked for it. And old people I had. So <laughs> I do have it. If that's something that you'd like to get a taste of, I've got the shows. Hello there. You're on the air. Well, good morning, people. Oh, good morning, Fred. What are you doing up at this hour? Oh, I'm always up at all hours. I don't have any set bedtime. <laughs> It was a long day. I took I, I took a nap earlier. I had a funeral today for that gentleman I told you about last week. Oh yes. Gosh. And we had 350 lions there from all around the state. That's a great turnout. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, but anyway. You have a 78 record player you can sell? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> well, would you get in touch with Tom in Kansas, please, because he needs one. Well, I will uh, tell you what, Walter, I'll give you my email address off the air. Okay. And you can pass it on to Tom. Okay. And tell him, though, to make sure he marks it clear, because I get a lot of junk that I just <laughs> erase, like mass erase, you know? <laughs> so I have to recognize it in the subject line that it's from him. Sounds good. Well put. I got one if he wants to pay the shipping. I don't know. That could get expensive. You bet. Well, I figured anybody had a 78 record player around, it had to be you. I'm pretty sure I got one out there. I'll look to make sure, but I'm positive I do. No, you have one. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. have everything out there. I got one that played both. It plays 33s, too, but that's all right, right? No, he gets to be okay on 33s and 45s. He just he buying 78 records and have nothing to play them with. Yeah, I got one that plays all three, I believe. I'll look to make sure, but I'm pretty sure I do. But I'm calling because you talked about... When was the last time a paper put out a special edition? Um, I don't know how they handle it now in the big city, but up here, little old Rutland, Vermont, we put out an extra edition on 9-11. No kidding. Yes, everybody did. You're right. There were an awful lot of extra editions out there. Yeah, we had a little four-pager that I, I kept. But it was nothing big, but it was, uh, it was definitely extra. They put it out that day. Yeah. So... It's hard to believe we're coming up on 10 years. Yeah, 10 years next month. Yep. You know? I think, I think it's like one of those for Pearl Harbor. You know, people who were alive during Pearl Harbor knew where they were. People who were alive during the Kennedy assassination knew where they were. And I think for our generation, people who knew where we were when we saw 9-11. Yeah, I do. And I think it's even a, I think it's even a step further because, uh, you know, it, the shock of... Anybody who saw that played live on TV, mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's just something I'll never forget. Yeah. But it's just, the idea of being able to see something like that on live national television as it happens, it was just, I don't know, it's unforgetful. Yeah. That's for sure. Get, get the thought of half to making a choice whether to uh, uh, jump out or not. You know, I mean, get this, people who saw all that. Yeah, I saw a special. And you don't hear a lot about these people anymore. We kind of shut them out. The Loopers. Mm-hmm. And I saw a special, I forget what channel it was on. It was on one of the learning channels. Um, and it, it was about that. About They tried to identify certain people that they, they caught jumping. Um, and this one guy is positive he found his wife. That his wife jumped. He saw her one photograph leaning out the window, and then he saw her actually falling. And he was positive it was her by, based on what she was wearing and stuff. And that kind of, he said it kind of brought ease to him because he, he knew then, you know, that she chose to take control and do things her own way kind of thing. It actually comforted him in some way, I guess he was saying. Uh, but yeah, you don't hear about those people no. anymore, though. No. They've kind of been. I don't. I don't know why. I don't know what the the thing is. But yeah. anyway, yeah, it was a scary day. Yeah, absolutely. So, what have you been doing this week, Fred? Anything? Anything uh, exciting? Well, not really. Trying to enjoy what's left of my summer. I start tutoring again here in a couple weeks. Which is good for the wallet. What's your area of expertise? If, if somebody says, Fred, I need the kid, and you can say, I can do any, everything but. Everything but. French? French. Uh, I won't touch French. I won't touch any foreign language, really, I won't teach. Uh, and really, like, advanced levels of mathematics. Mm-hmm. I can teach algebra. I can teach probably, I can probably even tutor uh, a little bit of trig. I wouldn't go any higher than that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable even tutoring calculus. I can do it, but I'm not comfortable enough in it to teach it. Uh, I love history. Mm-hmm. I love basic science. A lot of the kids I teach are, they're more basic courses, most of them. What do you think, we're talking about the education system for kids, what do you think more kids are lacking today? What's your gut hunch? You think it's the really? writing skills? You think it's the math skills? What What do you think is the major? I think it's accountability. We We pass kids today in math. Kids don't fail today. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I, I I don't care how much work they do, and they're not held accountable for doing good work. We don't demand quality work. We're, we're, it's It's like a. It's It's like move them up, ship them through. I mean, it's amazing to me how many kids get to high school and they can't read. It's incredible. Um, and I, I mean, based like like the other guy, the other gentleman that called said they don't read today. Well, they don't read because a lot of them can't. It, it's it's amazing. Um, I know, and 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 plus the people they get to teach. I mean, you, you, it's gotten better lately. But you're going to get what you pay for. And a lot of top, what could be top high school teachers aren't teaching. 
because they can take those math skills and those chemistry skills and those you know science skills or whatever, and they can get paid better elsewhere. Um, so that's that's another part of the problem. We don't invest in education, so you get what you pay for. Uh, but we uh, we're we're it's amazing to me. Kids just aren't—they're not held accountable. What's your favorite success story? A kid that you—you you had that you helped really get them excited about a topic, and they get took off. Anything like that? Have well, you? yeah, I had one kid here who uh, um, kicked out of school for I think a year, and uh, he had to do a project. Um, a final project for graduation it was a senior year. And he had to do some kind of final project. And he wrote, and he wrote and produced his own rap tape. And he just went, he did a really good job. I mean, when I say he produced it, he did everything. He, he, designed, the, he designed the cover for the cassette. I had him do that. He wrote all his own lyrics. He did all the recording and editing. Uh... And he did a really good job with it. It was impressive. That was exciting. Yeah. Um, and I had another kid who I was working with. This was a long time ago. I was working with him in, uh, in Chapter 1 Math. I don't know if you know what that was. but I don't even know if they have it anymore. But there used to be a program where if you were achieving... So many points lower than what you scored on a standardized test in math or reading, mm -hmm. you qualified for what they call Chapter One services, which were you would get pulled out of the classroom and get extra help. And I did mathematics for a couple of schools, and I had sixty some odd kids between the two schools that I would see, you know, I'd see groups of three or four, two or three times a week, and this one kid. Um, was really miserable in math, and I had him for a year. And uh, I remember seeing him about four years after that, and he was on the honors list and or honors list in school, he was getting straight A's in math, and he was uh, well, he loved math. And he said that told me that it was because of me, so that was kind of special. Yeah, nice. Yeah, he said you were the first one that taught it to me, so it made sense. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> And, and that was the only thing really holding him back. He was always strong in all the other areas. So um, you always get kids coming up to you and thanking you for this or that. And what's scary is when they come up to you when they're thirty and thanking you. And that, that's happening more and more as I get older, obviously. Matter of fact, I was coaching this year, and uh, I had a mom come up to me. Her freshman son was playing for me, and uh, so she asked me how I was doing, and I, I told her, doing good, and she goes, uh, well, Travis just loves playing for you almost as much as I did in fourth grade. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't remember her, but you know, I, I coached so many kids, but yeah, apparently I coached her in fourth grade, now I got her freshman. Playing for me. That's pretty good. Uh, that'll be that'll wake you up. <laughs>
Well, Patricia, you have a trivia question for Fred? I, I, I got a show picked out thanks to Walden last night. Uh-oh. The Big Show? Yes. I would love copies of The Big Show. Well, I could do that if you answer a question. I can try. Oh, no, 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 no. You have to answer. Well, you got to answer me, guys. you got to answer me this question. Was I half asleep when I heard something about Sunday nights, too? Uh, well, I, I talked about Sunday night last week. That tomorrow, I'm going to be late. Okay. I'm going to be, I'm going to the B.B. King concert, so I'll be about one thirty, two o'clock when I get in your time. And last Sunday, I played stuff that I heard August 10th, 1945, was waiting to see the Japanese were going to surrender, and I'll continue that tomorrow night. Well, that'll be like three hours late, right? Uh-huh, three hours late. Okay. I didn't quite catch the gist of it. Okay, I guess I'm ready. To be sacrificed here. <laughs> it's Fibber McGee and Molly. I'll try it. I listen to it. No, this is for the person who hates Fibber McGee and Molly. Oh, that's not me. Not you? No. Oh. I called after. Oh, sorry. That was Charles. That was Charles, yes. yes. Oh, oh, Fred, I am so sorry. No, it was definitely not me. All right. Are you ready? Yes. What was the name of the show that featured the Anderson family? Jim, Margaret, Betty, Bud, and Kathy. Oh, man. I want to say Father's Knows Best. Oh, my! Well, if you want to say Father Knows Best, because Father Knows Best is the correct answer. Oh, right, Brad. Okay, good. See, I'm smart. <laughs> you go. So... You know which um, which show you want, right? Yeah, the big show. Want the big show. All right. I can do that. That would be fantastic. Do that. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much. Bye. You guys have a good night. You have a great night, too. Uh, this is so strange to be talking to you at this hour. That's yeah, usually one end or the other. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but I, I took a nap because I was so tired, so. Oh, boy, I am doomed. Everybody has taken naps today. Mm-hmm. It's the best thing to do in the summer. I guess. Okay. Well, you have a great night, and thank you, you for calling. You, too. Bye-bye. 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 That's something Patricia doesn't do. She doesn't nap. I am not a nap person. Mm -mm. So painful to get up. I am not a bounce out of bed person. It is so painful to get up that I do not want to have to do it two times in the same day. So I don't take naps. I will stand up and walk around before I take naps. <laughs> I'm telling you, if I start nodding off, if I get really sleepy, I will get up, I will walk around, I'll have a cold Pepsi, I will do something. But I will not take a nap. So you have a full cup of coffee. I will have that, too. Yeah. I can do that. I know you can. You're so yeah. good. So, do you want some really useless but fun stuff, or do you want to take a break? Let's take a break. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. We're going to break in. Uh, and we're going to break in 66 years ago at this time. And it was about, I think, close to 2 o'clock in the morning when we were wondering what happened. So, Patricia and I will be back in about 10 or so minutes. So, we're going to stretch. And you ready, Patricia? I'm ready. Here we go. From the Mutual Newsroom in New York, Frank Waldecker speaking. Tokyo Radio said tonight the Japanese government is deliberating on its reply to a lied surrender term. And also from Tokyo, giving an indication that the Japanese food situation is becoming increasingly grave 
The Tokyo radio set in a broadcast that the Japanese people would begin to use tea as a foodstuff rather than as the habitual drink. The broadcast, beamed in Japanese to occupied Asia, declared that a Dr. Takemi had proved that through research, tea, when used as a food, was more nourishing and contains a great deal of vitamin C. For this reason, the broadcast said, as long as one takes tea, he can maintain sufficient nutrition, even though no vegetable is available. It added that the Japanese, so long as there is tea, will absolutely not suffer from the lack of vitamins. And while Tokyo is still hesitating in stalling, third, rather three fleets of super fortresses are prodding Japan toward a surrender decision. For the news, listen to your mutual station. Mutual brings you His Highness of Heidi Ho, Cab Calloway. Mutual brings you from the new Sandy Bar, Broadway and 49th Street in the heart of New York City, His Highness of Heidi Ho, Cab Calloway, and all the lads. And here's the first little number. Oh, yes, very intriguing with a title. Plenty of bounce. Boo a little, Sally Who. Yep. Jump with the jamboree. Come on, kids, and jump with me. Jump with the jamboree. Get them off of a tree. A fool in Ballyhoo. A fool in Ballyhoo. A fool in Ballyhoo. Think of the word, think of the word, think of the Ballyhoo. A fool in River Rue. A fool in River Rue. A fool in River Rue. I think of the word, think of the word, think of the Ballyhoo. High round. Swing it with the low round.
sweet as ours didn't glide. Programs from good boys bring back the old days. There's just remaining The Atlantic and just didn't know where to go. You're all at sea. You too would come under this title. It's Eddie here, frantic on the Atlantic. Jeff.
Collecting their little old bass register there, let's remind you, you're listening to Cab Calloway and his orchestra from the new Zanzibar, here on Broadway at 49th Street in the heart of New York City. His Highness of Idaho, Cab Calloway, and all the lads. I can't give you anything but love. Let's go. <laughs>
Now, man, have you really studied a good old trumpet for quite a while, anything more than six months? It means you're studying trumpetology. So here we go now, more than six months, trumpetology. Kev? Mutual Newsroom in New York. Tokyo Radio says acceptance of Potsdam Proclamation coming soon. I repeat, Tokyo Radio says acceptance of Potsdam Proclamation coming soon. One moment, please. Please, I repeat this bulletin. Tokyo Radio says... Acceptance of Potsdam Proclamation coming soon. The bulletin from San Francisco. Tokyo Radio said today that an imperial message accepting the Potsdam Proclamation would be forthcoming soon. Repeating that bulletin from San Francisco, Tokyo Radio said today that an imperial message accepting the Potsdam Proclamation would be forthcoming soon. For the news, listen to your mutual station. Mutual Newsroom in New York, San Francisco, the International News Service, FCC quotes Domai saying Japan accepts allied terms. Repeating this bulletin, dated San Francisco, the Federal Communication Commission quotes Domai saying Japan accepts allied terms. This is not official. I repeat, this is not official. This is from the Tokyo Radio.
Just one moment, please. We're standing by in the mutual newsroom. Just one moment, please. From the OWI, the Japanese government has accepted the Allied Surrender Formula embodied in the note dispatched to Tokyo by the United States. The Tokyo Domai Agency said today in a wireless dispatch recorded by the Federal Communications Commission. We have another bulletin here. Japan surrenders. Japan surrenders. Now repeating the entire bulletin, the Japanese government has accepted the Allied Surrender Formula embodied in the note dispatched to Tokyo by the United States. The Tokyo Domai Agency said today in a wireless dispatch recorded by the Federal Communications Commission. This is not official. We're awaiting confirmation from Washington. This is not official. For the news, listen to your mutual station. Swing bands make him frown. He doesn't get his kicks from boogie woogie licks. He's dead but won't lay down. He wears a blue serge suit with the belt in the back. No flair so rare with the belt in the back. He thinks a cat is a household pet. And his favorite dance is the minuet. Must come from a curio set. I mean a blue shirt suit with the belt in the back. This is the Mutual Newsroom in New York. We're still standing by at our newsprinters in the Mutual Newsroom, waiting for some further word on it. I'd like to repeat for you at this time the United Press Bulletin, which came in at 1.56 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Washington, Tuesday, August 14th, the, via the United Press. The Japanese Dome News Agency said today that the Japanese government has accepted the Allied Surrender Formula embodied in the note dispatched to Tokyo by the United States. The broadcast was recorded by the Federal Communications Commission. That bulletin was on the United Press. Now we're moving over to the Associated Press printer, which says, quote, a broadcast by the Japanese Dome Agency said the reply to the Allies' unconditional surrender demand, quote, probably will be available as soon as legal procedures are completed, unquote. This broadcast said the Japanese cabinet had been in continuous session until late Monday night. And here is the flash, which came in at 1.55 on the Associated Press, uh, New York. I'm sorry, it's over the International News Service printer. It reads, New York, August 14th. The Japanese government has accepted the Allied Surrender Formula the Dome Agency reported today. There is more on that, which reads... Dome, in a wireless dispatch recorded by the FCC, said that Tokyo had agreed to the terms embodied in the note dispatched to Tokyo by the United States State Department. Now, returning to the United Press machine, we pick up where it reads, the fateful announcement came at 2.49 p.m. Tuesday, Tokyo time, 90 hours, 19 minutes, after Tokyo Radio first broadcast Japan's surrender offer. 
This is the Mutual Newsroom in New York. We have still not had any official word from any allied capital that the Japanese have surrendered. Here is a bulletin which says Washington, by International News Service, the Swiss legation in Washington said it had not, I repeat, said it had not received Japan's acceptance of the allied surrender terms up to 2 a.m. Eastern wartime. Well, that's just a minute before 2 a.m. Eastern wartime at the present moment. I'll repeat that. The Swiss legation in Washington said it had not received Japan's acceptance of the allied surrender terms up to 2 a.m. Eastern wartime. Now, returning to a United Press printer in the Mutual Newsroom in New York, we'd like to repeat that the broadcast was recorded by the United Press and by the Federal Communications Commission from the Tokyo radio. We're going to pause briefly for station identification. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And we get to take a break. Hello there, we're back. Hello there, we're back. Hi, Patricia. That was a busy night. Sure was. It was early in the morning. On the 14th, which we are, I thought it was appropriate. Pretty much, pretty, pretty close to the time when it would happen. That way I could go hit, grab a snack, grab a pop, do stuff like that there. Is that what you did? Uh-huh. There was oh, no peanut Oh, we know your secret. There was no peanut butter, so I had to make a quesadilla. I'm doing something tomorrow for the first time I ever, I ever participated in. What? Uh, I'm going to a salsa tasting contest. Are you serious? Yep. Do you like salsas? I do. Uh, so you're a good person to um, to give them an opinion. I guess so. So um, one of our friend's husband is entering in the contest. Mm-hmm. And last year I guess they had 14 booths. Wow. So hopefully there's enough chips to go around. So, I'll be doing that later today. Question. Yes. You've never done this, but are you familiar with how they do it? I have no idea. I'm, I mean, out here, they also have uh, chili cook-offs and things like that. I've never done anything like that, a food-tasting thing. So. It baffles me that people can go from one booth to another and with the taste of one booth still in their mouth that they're going to taste <laughs> what's in the next booth. I don't know how they do it. I, I mean, salsa. I don't know. There are some pretty strong flavors in different kinds of salsa. That would be one way. It's sort of like the, sort of like the, um, <laughs> the Jimmy Stewart, remember when he had to be the judge in the food tasting contest? No. It's a great six shooter, one to tell. And there were the two sisters that fought. They were always best friends until something happened. The salsa tasting contest happened. And they, they, those were plum, plum preserves. Okay. Well, Brett Parson got caught in the middle, so he had to be the judge. Oh, gee. And he lucked out because uh, he went and had breakfast at the local cafe, and the coffee was so hot it burned his tongue, so he couldn't figure out who had the best preserve in town. What a great ending. Yeah. <laughs> what so, a great ending. So both sisters were mad at him because he didn't name their preserve the best because he named the guy at the local diner who was known had the worst food in town. 
And if Brett said, I can't tell, that's what he, you know, his little private commentary, he said, I, I couldn't tell. I'll have to burn my tongue on, on the guy coffee. I couldn't tell whatever I ate. He was so good at sitting. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's really... I thought I heard all of the the six shooters, and I may remember it when I hear it. Yeah. But as you're talking, as you're telling me the story, I don't recall having heard that one. Well, there's another, another one to go look for. I guess. Well, yeah. I had the whole series. Uh, it's a great series. And if you're looking for the six shooter out there, everybody, I bet Patricia can send it out to you if you want to if you win and answer one of her questions. Patricia has the whole set. Yeah. It was only one series, one one season. Uh huh. And it it was a really marvelous show. But the the reason it didn't come back gives great credit to Jimmy Stewart's principles. Uh, yeah. He did not want to do a show that had a tobacco product advertised mm -hmm. that was supported by a product and he said no yep. those are the circumstances I respectfully decline and you know it, it wasn't it, there wasn't anything in anger it was just his principle he was not going to act in any show that was supported by a tobacco advertiser mm -hmm. he didn't want the show he starred on I mean he had no problem working on Jack Benny's show but he was not the uh he was not the, the star. Boss. It was not his show that was being sponsored. Right. By cigarettes. And he just held his ground and mm -hmm. said, no, can't do it. And he didn't. Yep. And that was the end of the show. I mean, there wasn't anybody else who could have played the role. It, no. It, it, it was an extremely well-written show. But there was no way they could make that kind of a transition. That is true. Um... You know, some of the best westerns, that one, in my opinion, and Frontier Gentlemen were all very short shows. She mm -hmm. thinks about it. Frontier Gentlemen just knocked my socks off that it was not carried through for another series. What happened with that one? The, the following week, that's when they started Have Gun World Travel. So they must have decided that um, they didn't want to carry two shows with Dana at the start, and they just, you know, they stopped one week Frontier Gentlemen. Next, we picked up with Have Gun World Travel. Yeah. Uh, he was another one who was so remarkable. He could do so many things in so many shows, like Elliot Lewis. He, he yeah. I mean, I don't think he ever went to bed. <laughs> I mean, really, when you think about it, look at what the man accomplished in, in a few, really, just a few years. Mm -hmm. And he, when you call him a renaissance man, he indeed was. He covered all of the bases. John Daner was another one who was in everything and played a lot of characters, not necessarily the lead role, mm -hmm. played a lot of characters, so you wouldn't necessarily recognize that he was in the show until you got to the end, and they said, also starring John Daner. And I think back, it's, oh, yes, I recognize the voice now. But it was after the fact. He could do a lot of different characters and be the voice of those various characters. I don't could he, my question is, I should not have said I don't think because I don't know, could he have carried two major shows every week? I would think the answer is yes. I just think CBS, at that time, in the late 58, decided they were only going to spend, donate so many hours to drama, and they had to make a choice. And they chose Paladin. Uh-huh. 
they made a good choice. I mean, either one, whichever one they chose would have been a good choice. But I think they had a wider scope with Have Gun, Will Travel. I think they could have created a lot more scenes and a lot more plots with that particular character than they could have with, what was his first name? In Powhatan? J.B. Kendall, what was his first name? Jack. No, we did this one time. I know. And you didn't remember. No. Maybe somebody else remembers. 714-545-2071. What does the J.B. stand for in J.B. Kendall's name? He was the Frontier Gentleman. And it was a great show. Absolutely, and... You think about it, 58 CBS on Sunday just devote two hours of drama. That's where they had Gunsmoke, Suspense, Johnny Dollar, and yeah. Have Gun World Travel. Would would they have considered Frontier Gentlemen a drama or a Western? It was one of those uh-huh. reads. Probably a Western because it was hidden in Western garb. The setting was in the West. It certainly wasn't a traditional Western, Mm-mm. although there was a lot of traditional Old West woven into some of the stories, not all of them, but some of the stories. Mm. Interesting. Hmm. 714-545-2071. Give us a call. Now, I got an email from Dan in Indiana. He is not going to call because they've got thunderstorms, too, and it's already killed four people. So he's not going to be volunteering. Um, <laughs> what else do I get here? Hold on. There's who? Ah, okay. It's Steve. Steve, one night you're going to call in. I get an email occasionally from Steve, but he wrote in with the full story, including the name of the commander. I couldn't remember uh, the. the one who went hunting for a U-boat? Yeah. Read this to you? Yes. Okay. Do. During World War II, the German U-boats were sinking a lot of merchant ships. That is absolutely correct. That's what the, um, the history piece was on. To try to counter this, the U.S. Navy came up with hunter-killer groups, a jeep carrier smaller than aircraft carriers and about six destroyer-type ships to sink the U-boats. One of the earlier groups was commanded by Captain Daniel Gallery. The hunter-killer group was on the track of a U-boat and was depth-charging the U-boat when it surfaced and the ships opened up with their guns to sink it. Finally, um, to the interesting stuff he says, Captain Gallery decided to try to capture one. If another one came to the surface, he asked for volunteers for a boarding crew they had trained and sometime later drove another U-boat to the surface. That's exactly what happened with, uh, with the depth charge. Captain Gallery ordered borders away, an order that hadn't been heard in the U.S. Navy since the War of 1812. Borders away. Isn't that interesting? I never heard that before. The U-boat was captured. The Germans had opened the seacocks, and that they showed the seacocks on this one. But the borders were able to save the U-boat and tow it to port. The U-boat is sitting in City Park in Chicago. How about that? Um, one of the... the additional things when they talked about the seacocks being open because the Germans had this system 
of booby-trapping the U-boats if they were at risk of being boarded before they would allow anybody to board, they would blow the thing up. But they booby-trapped it. So when the boarders went into a U-boat, anything that they touched could have been a detonator. And when they saw the... Um, what, am I, what am I trying to say? The, 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 the trigger and the wiring or whatever? No, I, I'm, I'm looking for the, for the correct word here. The, the um, cox, the, the, the cap mm -hmm. to keep the water from coming in mm -hmm. had been removed. But when the boarders got there, they got there in time to cap the hole again and stop the water from coming in. But they had a choice. Did they pick this up at the risk of it being booby-trapped? And it was not. One of the guys said, got to do it. That's what we're here for. And he ran his hands around the perimeter. Um, and let's see, train a little something on the surface. Hatch. Seacock. That was it. Um, the Seacock. That's what uh, Steve wrote here. And it, it was not booby-trapped. And they managed to get the Seacock back in place to keep it from sinking. And that's how they wound up with uh, with the U-boat, and it was the one that was th that they hauled into port was the one that had the 1,700 documents and the two coders. So, interesting story. So they must have not gone inside. They just pulled it to shore first. Oh, they were inside. Ah, okay. They boarded it. Okay. Actually boarded it, and every step they took, they were at risk of detonating oh, something. Yeah. But as they found out, and, you know, in a scary way, they found out that the depth charge had done so much damage in, in the sense that the thing popped up to the surface, they didn't have time to set the booby traps. They just had to bail out. The captain said, get out, yeah. which was a nice thing for him to do because he could have said, stay here. So they also picked up the, the German too and took them? Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hello there, you're on the air. Well, you have a very interesting subject tonight. We do. How you doing? Well, I'm doing. <coughs> I couldn't have I couldn't have sleep and figured I'd better call you because I've got to get Barbara up at 4 o'clock. we got a homecoming at the church today, and we got to cook this morning. Because we were out shopping and running around yesterday and didn't get it done. Okay. Well, you know, this is a ludicrous hour for you to be up. What? No, not really. I just, I've been waking up awfully early lately. And oh, everybody's calling at the wrong time tonight. Well. Used. I think the name was Jamie. What name? Oh, um, J.B. Kendall? Yes. No, it wasn't. Well, then I... That wasn't it. I'll have to think about it. Okay. You know what the middle name was? Huh? You know what his middle name was? Not right offhand. That won't come to me either, and I know that I've heard it, but it's not doing me any good right now. I'm going to plead too early. You can do that. I'm going to put you, Walden, I'm, I'm going to be able to listen but not talk for a minute. Okay. Well, Howard and I will, Patricia's moving her stuff around here. Yeah, while she's doing that, I, I'm going to wait she comes back, but I do want to comment on it. So 
some of this um, German submarines. Yeah. But I will I will wait. Wait till he till back he gets back. Uh, it is rather interesting that I have, but nevertheless, or at least it was to me. Right. But uh, anyway. I I when I would do. I, I got a dumb question about Jaws while you're here. All right. I have noticed I can go to a website and open a window in an area where I'm looking for something. Yeah. And they will have a search window there. And I don't always use that. I just look. Well, sometimes I will put in a an item to search for. Right. All right. It won't go anywhere else. It sits right there on that. You cannot get it to move forward, backwards, left, right, or inside out. Okay, so mm -hmm. you close the whole website. Mm -hmm. You go on to something else, and uh, you shut down the Internet. You go on about your business. You come back in a week. Mm -hmm. Go back to the same website. Go to the same window area, and there is that search word again, and it will not move. Have you run into a deal like I that? I think I know what you're talking about, and what what is it, I'll tell you how what I'm doing. After I put the word in, I hit the escape key, because uh, that frees up the cursor, and then I'm able to arrow down and look for the button to send it on its way. Hmm. If I don't hit the escape key, I'm stuck. I didn't box. know that. I will try that. But yeah. I mean, it never goes away, even though you get out of it. Uh huh. Correct. You come back a week later. It's still there. It's still there, and it still won't move. It's, it's, so hit the escape key, and that will seem to free it up, and then you can arrow, and that, and you can look we'll for try it. Try that. Yeah, that's sort of what I've been doing with that whole. And that's this somewhat a new feature when we moved up into the recent job, but I didn't have that problem until. Yeah, I agree with you. And another thing I have always had, and and, and um, Freedom Scientific said it don't happen, but I say it does happen. You can you you can be on a site, and you you've got a split screen. You got stuff on. You cannot make that thing go to the other side of the screen. Yeah. Now she can take the mouse and move it over there, yeah. and then you can go up and down through that side. But it will not move. And Freedom Scientific says that's not true. Well, and, well, where, where did that happen? If you call, where did that happen? Well, for Pete's sake, you looked at so many things, you don't know exactly where that happened. But they say it won't happen, but it does. Well, also next thing it sort of drives me nuts because I'm visiting our websites and I'm sending an email through their form mm -hmm. and they want you to fill out the secret password images and you know so I can't exactly. yeah, so read it. Can't see it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then I hit yeah. the, and I hit the uh, the audible say hit this for audit some of them do and it's so gobbled up. You, you know, you're just guessing what you're hearing mm -hmm. anyway, so I agree. Well, now, that part has been going on in earlier versions. That's not True. due to 12. True. It's just, it's always it's just, going on. It's just a recent, it's just something that gets still 
aggravating that they haven't figured out a way to yes. read the image that you can type it in yourself. Right. You know. Oh, I just thought I'd ask, but I'll try that escape thing and see if that'll fix one problem. That's what I'm. That's what I've been doing. Because a lot of time when I have a Facebook account and I have to use the escape key to get out brackets and and columns and things like that, and that seemed to help me with short functions and things like that. So give it a try. Yeah, I will. Patricia, are you back? Nope, she's still getting something organized for us. Maybe she had to go milk the cow. Could be. Or else she's eating her rubber chicken. <laughs> she's back! Yeah. Okay, I bet you had to go feed the meal or something. Well, I think she was just cooking dinner. No, she was getting a snack because she's got... She had to get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's all right. Have some of us. Can you disclose what you had? Um, I had crackers and sugar tablets. All right. How's that for a conversation? What kind of crackers? Peanut butter crackers. Hey, that's going in style. So I want to hear about the, the submarine story. Oh, let me give you a, a thing you probably never thought about. I understand your problem. Barbara has it too. A lot of people eat peanut butter, and if it goes into shock, I've heard a lot of EMS people say they'd get to a patient and find their mouth stuffed full of peanut butter, and of course they couldn't swallow it. Mm -hmm. um, it costs a lot more than the stuff in the jar, but just one tube of it would be sufficient. But one thing that really bring it up is cake icing. Oh, I know, and wouldn't I love to have that? No. And and they you know they have it in a squeeze tube type thing and it costs about two or three times what a a jar to or, or container you know it's not a jar it's not a can it's a plastic thing but anyway you know how it comes but it's so convenient you can have it in your purse or somewhere convenient in the house and um, I think it's it's faster and better than orange juice or peanut butter. No, I, I wasn't eating peanut butter. I had the crackers, you know, the peanut butter crackers. I know. I, I'm just making a comment. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Uh, this this U-boat thing, um, I'm sure you're both and everybody listening is aware of the Enigma machines. It interests me because I'm a radio operator, but uh, you do know what those were. No, I do not. So you better bring you better bring it to school. Gosh, for heaven's sake! Yep, you gotta take it to school. It was it was a German code machine that neither United States or England could break, and of course it was very closely guarded by the Germans. There, that it was on most all of their uh, submarines. But they were and the British. I think did one of the same things that that um, Patricia was talking about. They actually captured a submarine, and they got one of them. Mm -hmm. And then they could break the codes. That was it. But they did not want the Germans to know they actually had it. So they let the submarine go down anyway, and it was reported sunk. But it was never reported that they actually captured it. Because they knew if they had, they would have known they had the machine. Hmm. Now, and I, I'm, I'm very, wasn't expecting this, or I would have looked, but there is 
is a guy named Tom. Sorry, his last name will not come to me. He is a ham operator, but that's not his claim to fame here. He has a museum, I think, in Massachusetts, a very large one, of old telegraph equipment from everything you can imagine. But he's also got a big collection of Enigma machines that he's bought over the years since World, you know, after World War II. He's, I gather he's probably about my age. I don't know that, but I think he is. So, you know, there's this stuff he's found since then. But um, um, I have emailed him several times years ago when I was trying to find some particular items, and um, he was talking about those, and I think he's done a book on them. But uh, they, they were very interesting. I, I can't remember a lot of the construction to explain it to you. It's been too long. But um, that was a real thing that um, us and England were after during the war, and they finally got their hands on one. Well, we did. It really, it really made a difference. We did the same thing as Japanese. You know, we broke their code pretty early. I think around Midway. And that coming uh-huh. in 43, we uh, hunt down. Uh, Amomoto and shine down, you know. Right. And yes, but see, theirs were. I, I think that was very good code breaking work by our teams. But the Enigma machine, they could not do it. They tried for quite a while and could not. And if they hadn't have, you know, actually gotten their hands on one, um, I won't say it couldn't have happened sooner or later. But I doubt it would have happened during the war. Mm-hmm. Oh, with this this U-boat that uh, was captured, or captured, I guess is the right word, yeah. they got right. two machines. There were two machines on board. And what right. was, well, one of the more interesting things about this particular U-boat was that it had what they thought was a string of bad luck. They started out being the masters of the seas and then had a string of disasters, and this was the final disaster. But when the... U-boat popped to the top, the men aboard heard a noise that they weren't familiar with. The captain had shot himself in the head. They had one fatality and one injury in the entire operation, and the fatality was the captain of the U-boat who shot himself. That happened quite often because I guess it was just a thinking of the time, and if it had ever gone home, it would have happened anyway. Um, there was no such thing as failure. The Germans did not accept that. But I mean, to do it as a first action, as opposed to, you know, taking care of your men first. Well, doing what they thought was the honorable it, thing. Well, I don't think it went down as far as the men like it did, commanders. Um, I really, I'm sure that happened too. But I don't really ever remember hearing about the run-of-the-mill soldier or sailor or whatever doing stuff like that. This was high-command stuff that it usually happened to because they were the ones that got blamed if something went wrong. That that I can understand. Um, Now it makes a little bit of sense as you explain it to me. My thinking, uh, and I'm not in the middle of a war, I don't know how they were instructed or what their orders were to carry through in this kind of a set of circumstances, but I, I would think that the first responsibility would be to 
demand the men in his uh, under him, and then take care of himself. Uh, no, no, you're missing something here. The men did not know what the commanders knew. I mean, they couldn't really give up much information because they were just doing what they were told. They did not know all the details of a mission or anything like that. And um, I understand what you're saying, but that they really didn't know what he knew, and it didn't matter that much. I think in the case of the Japanese, it was a different situation. I'm sure they didn't stand for much defeat either, but I think in their case, it was an honor thing. They had failed, and they couldn't face it, or wouldn't face it, or whatever the case may be, and kill themselves. Uh, I think in the case of the Germans, it, it was a case of, man, you, you messed up, and what are you doing here? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and I think it was two different mindsets between the two countries. And, and But we had a third country in there, the United States. Walden, if a ship were, if, it, if a ship, well, I, I say if a ship, a lot of our ships went down. Uh-huh. Did the captain not take care of his men first? I think it's always what the rule is, them take care of the men, and he, then he could, would go down with the ship. Right. Right, but we had a totally different mindset than the Germans and Japanese. Um, It just, it wasn't the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, the captain was the last one to leave a ship. If if everybody wasn't off, he didn't leave. And it was an honor thing, I guess. And he was in command. It should have been that way. I'm not arguing that. But we... Even in the case of being captured, I, I really don't think there were very many that would have taken their own life. But we just had a completely different mindset, and I don't think our government held so much against a commander if he was captured that like the Germans and Japanese did. Well, I, I was just thinking, I was just, a week or so ago, Ransom was, uh General Wainwright, he was the uh, commander, head of general captain Corridor, and right. he stayed in jail for all three and a half years. He stayed in the Japanese yes. prison, and uh, you know we, you know, I think in a lot of ways we put value in human life. We didn't expect people. Exactly. I mean, it was just a totally different mindset right. that we had. Mm-hmm understand as you're explaining it that the captain was the one who had all of the information and would be the greatest risk to Germany and their work so he had right. he had to go and he had to go fast exactly okay because you know once he was captured there were very few chances now there were some committed suicide after they were captured but they were watched very carefully because of that uh, they knew they would do it and um, you know, you can makeshift all kind of things if you're pushed hard enough to the situation. Um, that's why, you, you know, you have to be careful not to, even when you got them locked up, that they don't have belts or anything they can hang themselves with. Although, a lot of that happened, even in, in prison. And um, people are very ingenious if they're determined enough. Sure. And a lot of times they had actual men watching them 24 hours a day 
to prevent them coming up with some idea to do this. Um, you know, it was a, a 24-hour watch on them. I was, just think, I was just thinking two examples. Think of Jim Obama. They gave him a choice and he committed suicide. Uh-huh. And think of our um, Benedict Arnold. Uh, you know, he would he trade he betrayed the country, and then he just basically wound up living the rest of his days of life in England. You know, we didn't outcast. He was an outcast. He was we, he was an outcast in England. They didn't right. right. We didn't either. We, we didn't. Well, actually. In England, my my aunt here a couple of years ago went, and she was confused. She went into the British Museum, and they were saying Benedict Arnold was a, was a hero. And here she forgot she was in England rather than America. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but see, I don't well, know. Well, you, you know, we did execute deserters, but that, that you know, it's not the same thing as a commander taking his own life. Mm-hmm. Or if he was captured, us condemning him. Um, someone that would desert his own people under fire or whatever. Um, it's not the same thing at all. And yeah. we did do that. Every thinking, country did it. I was just trying to think during World War Two, how many, how many of our own citizens were even at, we actually execute? I think the op- uh, one. The Oppenheimers, wasn't it? The uh, nuclear, they gave up... The, the Rosen, Rosenberg? Rosenberg, yeah. Uh, there was a couple. They were both executed. Right. I, I, I remember that. I can't remember if there were any others or not. You found one, Patricia? Um, I, I thought you were talking about someone who deserted. I guess oh, no, we had a lot of deserters. Betrayed? A lot of deserters. Yes. Only one was executed. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I did not know that. But the you know the, the Rosenbergs were, were traitors. That's yeah. what was to it. They, um, I, I'm just I can't remember if there were any others that were. I think they're the last one we have ever executed who betrayed Eddie the country. Slovak. I couldn't remember his last name. I knew it was Eddie, so I put up Eddie deserter and and executed. Eddie Slovak was the only deserter who was executed in World War Two. Can you find a story about that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he was under General Eisenhower. Okay. And um, let, let me see. On his 25th birthday, Gosvick said, and he became the uh, the only one executed since the Civil War. Let me see here. Mm-hmm. Um, Eddie Slovak. Let me see what's here. You go ahead and keep talking. Yeah, I wanted to bring up another thing that. Most people don't seem to realize, and in, in a way, it's rather compu- rather peculiar. Do you realize, or have you noticed that any time we have actually won a war, we rebuild the country, and they're better off than they were before? Mm-hmm. And what other country has ever done that? Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's where we we try to correct, I think that's all because of World War One. you know. Uh, we were trying to prevent it. That's why we went to Marshall Plan and pretty much kept, kept the same policy. You're, you're absolutely right. Yes, and it's not because people get the idea, well, they were ashamed of what they did. Not what, that, that is not true. We didn't start it. We weren't the one causing the trouble. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that stopped it. 
And I don't know of any other country in history that has ever rebuilt who they conquered. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, yeah. a lot of we, great things we do as a country. We're, we're a very forgiving um, a country in a lot of ways. Exactly. We are. Now, we've discussed this before, but during World War II, uh, you know, nowadays, like 9-11 or whatever, mm -hmm. a month later, everybody is over it and done with and gone on something else. They, they forgot. Mm -hmm. um, Iraq and, and Afghanistan, we were supposed to be in there and out in the wheat and they taught them their lesson and all this stuff. They don't have the stomach for extended deals that, that it takes time. But, you know, during World War II, now we had a lot of people that say we shouldn't be in it and all this stuff. Well, that that may be, but with the circumstances like it was at the time, who else was going to stop it? Mm -hmm. Nobody could withstand Japan or Germany. Nobody. And we were all there was. But the, the thing is, people were so angry then. And even when, now I wasn't born to 48, but they still were. And even up in the 50s, people were still angry with the Germans and Japanese. They hadn't forgot about it. Um, now, of course, later people that came along didn't even know no better, but you wouldn't believe, and I mean, I was I was there at that time, you know, during the 50s and all, but you wouldn't believe how angry people still were over what the Japanese and Germans had done. I, and people today just don't understand that. Okay, I, I have... Um January 31st, 1945, U.S. World War II Private Eddie Slovic became the only deserter out of 21,000 soldiers to be executed. General Eisenhower is said to have given the go-ahead so his death could be used as an example to others. That part I knew. Um, previously, while training, Slovic had asked to be transferred to a non-combat post, but he had been refused because they needed men at the front line and he deserted and he was executed. He was the only one who was executed. I remembered Eddie, I couldn't remember Slovic. Um, it was Eddie Slovic, January 31st, 1945. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, um, how are you feeling? Well, I went and got that TENS unit Thursday and I wore it Friday. Uh -huh. And that's it so far because we were out all day yesterday. and. I will try again this week, but so far I haven't noticed anything from it. Except it can definitely get your attention. Oh, really? Or, or as far as helping my back, I haven't noticed. Uh, I, I, is it is it set correctly for you that you're not getting electrical shock sensations? Oh, no, you said it yourself. Now, there are adjustments you can't get at and fool with, but the intensity you set yourself. Right. And you're supposed to bring this up to a point you're starting to feel it. Hmm? But if you carry it on above that, um, you know, you can't put up with it. It can really get to you. Yeah. But you don't um, understand. Is, is this something that you use every single day? I don't know how much you're supposed to use it. What they're recommending is that you will use it for one to two hours at a time and then have it off for an hour or two and then back on an hour or two then this is uh, dur during the day is what they're recommending or at least that's what the guy recommended to me yeah 
Well, then this, uh, is, this is a How long is supposed to take before this thing is supposed to do some good? I failed to ask him, but it looks like it ought to right away, but yeah. uh, I really didn't find it that way. I don't know. So, Walden, this is a system of, um, it, it actually sets up a system of electric shocks that are supposed to short circuit the pain um, travel, the, the pain travel ways. Wow, oh, You have these adhesive electrode pads uh -huh. that you stick on your skin um, X inches apart. Now, that's your determination how far apart you put them. This particular one is a two-channel job. I know they have them up as high as eight channels, but and you don't have to use them both. You can just use one channel. It doesn't matter. But anyway, you have two pads for each channel. You have two leads that plug into the main unit, and each two pads you plug one side of each lead into it, uh, each one. So you have a path between those two pad, uh, pads. And then you can put two over on the other side of your back and hook up to the second channel, and they do the same thing. You can put these things on vertically or horizontally, um, whatever you want to try. They tell you not to put them over your spine. I never got a good answer why, but they tell you not to do that. Um, and when you start turning up the intensity, uh, this is a, a, um, a high-frequency pulse that this thing puts out. And to start with, you don't feel anything until you get to a certain point. And, and this varies with the person. I'll explain why in a minute. But once you get up to where you can start to feel it, you need to stop because if you keep going, um, it's like you're being stung or something at the electric points. And this, this this can really get intense if you keep going. And how far this thing will go, I have no idea. But it varies with a person because different people can stand different amounts of electricity. Now, it doesn't take much for me to feel it. But a friend of mine that died here a few months ago, man, he could stand all kind of stuff and not even notice it. I think it's the resistance in your skin mm -hmm. that determines this. Did he build up a tolerance to it as well? I'm sorry? Did he build up a tolerance so that... I don't know. Um, I never have. I mean, I've never had a tangent before. I'm just talking about that I can't stand much electricity before I really know it. Now, I've gotten a hold of some pretty high stuff. I think the worst one I ever got a hold of is about 450 volts off of a capacitor. That actually made me sick and sweat, but that was unusual. Generally, the worst thing I get a hold of is 120 volts off of one side of a one phase of an electrical line. But um, you know, I mean, it was amazing what he could stand and and, and not even hardly notice it was there. But uh, I can't do it. But anyway, we'll just have to see now. I didn't, wasn't aware of this when I saw the guy with this thing, but I'm curious about something. Um, you may have seen it on the internet, Patricia, or know something about it, but you've got EMS units and TENS units, T-E-M-S. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't really understand what the difference actually is. The, for the sake of Walden, 
the Tianjin, it's is a trans titanious or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. An EMS unit is an electrical muscle stimulator. Now it looks like to me you're kind of doing the same thing. So I really don't understand the difference. And some of the TENS units have both capabilities. Um, to my knowledge, mine does not, but I don't understand the difference. What, what I'm hearing you say, one is stimulating the nerves and the other one is stimulating the muscles. Well, now that could be, but it looks like you're doing the same thing. Um, now I understand the difference between nerves and muscles, but what I'm saying, it, it looks like that, that you, you are, are still pulsing um, electrical shocks mm-hmm. in whichever one you're doing. So that's why I don't understand the difference. I'm, I'm going to do something that I used to hate from the teachers and say, Gosh, that's we all? come back with the answer next week. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think you, I'm on your side. You get the same, you, you get an electrical stimulation. And right. Gotta go somewhere. Well, I don't know. Maybe with a TENS unit, when you crank it up high enough, let me assure you, you are stimulated. Yeah, well, you know. You can't stay still. You've got predictive, you've got pathways, nerve pathways. Right. And because they're identifiable, I mean, you know exactly where they are. Yeah. It would stand to reason that if they, if the electrodes are placed properly, that they are going to stimulate nerves, whereas the other unit is placed properly on muscles and will cause muscle contractions. Well, that may be, I don't know enough about it to even discuss it. I, just, I really wasn't even aware there were two different units until I was reading the other day and saw that. But anyway, I sure don't know what I'm talking about. Well, <laughs> I can't help you because I don't know either. Well, anyway, that's just the way it stands, and we will see if it does any good. So far, it hasn't, and that's about all there is to it. Well, I hope you you finally get to the to the correct point on it that you start feeling some relief. You've been yeah, me too. You've been through an awful lot on this one, <clears throat> awful lot. The bad thing that I hate about it is all day Friday, the where you plug the leads into the pads. The pads have a short pigtail of wire on them with a plug on the end of it, and they're very small, and they're very tight to plug them together. They don't just fall out because they're so tight. But in wearing it during the day several times, I've noticed that, you know, one of them wasn't doing something or didn't appear to be. But I was still trying to learn what to do with the control thing. And when I would, um, you know, pull my shirt up to um, take the leads off for whatever reason, I would find one of them unplugged. And for the life of me, I can't figure out how they would, come apart as stiff as they are to plug together and that is just a situation of how you're wearing it I guess and where you've got the the lead stored that's probably causing this but um, 
you know, I've only got one day experience, so I can't really give any um, expert advice here. Next week, you'll come back with some answers. You in the market for a question? Absolutely. <laughs> I'll do, I hope better than the last one I answered, but anyway, I'll do this, and then I guess it's probably getting closer and closer to time to get her up and go cooking. Okay, well, oh my goodness. Okay, this one's a hard one. Who was first mate Red Gallagher? It was the first mate on the African Queen. Nope. Try You're close. African Queen was Humphrey Bogart. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're right. You're right. I'm, okay. The, um... You can do it. Oh, hey. With, with uh, Elliot Lewis was the captain. Yes. Um, huh? Yes, you're on there. And I know that. <laughs> it's too early. It's the name, the Voyage of the... Voyage He's got it, the Voyage of the... Yeah, I know. Boink. You got the queen part. Blank queen. I know that. I know that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, well. It, it, and, I, and you sent me the CD of the... You got four of them. Yes. Lord, you I gave away. Oh, the Scarlet Queen, was it? Right. Yes. Oh. Okay. Oh, you worked so hard on that one. Uh, yeah, I did. Well, thank God I knew it. That was the truth. What's so aggravating? Oh, gosh, it is so awful when you know it's in your head and it won't come out. Yep, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that means... I don't want to give you another IOU. What can I get for you? Okay, well, I've got an answer to this time. Wow, okay. I think I would like some Boston Blackie. Oh, I've got loads of Boston Blackie. And you can put these down for future escape and suspense, I think. I don't have any of those. Okay. And I will come up with some more some other time. But, I mean, you can just make a note of those for future. Got them. But I can't think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's good. And and you did your homework. This is really good because always you're sitting there and saying, "Oh, I didn't think about that before I called." But you well, I did. I didn't have much time to devote to it this week, <laughs> but I did do a little bit and came up with something. Okay. I know there are plenty others I'd really like to have, but it's just they're not coming to me. But anyway, we got to start. Okay. Well, this is good. You did your homework. This is good. Well, I'm going to let y'all have it, and I will try my best to thank J.B. Kendall. And I know I know that, too, but right now it's not coming to me. You'll, you'll get it as soon as you hang up. It's going to come to you. J. Probably. Let's see if anybody else knows or remembers. Oh. Talk about this. Just so you will know, huh? we are cooking fried chicken for the day. Oh. I was going to ask you. Please. And fried okra. And you're going to be okay with the fried okra, right? I will probably eat some of it. I can do that. It's the stewed stuff that I can't handle. But it's still not one of my more favorite things, but I can eat it. Okay. Uh, it was it was Barbara's idea. Now, here's a funny thing. <laughs> For years, at these homecomings, Barbara's preacher 
would, Barbara and her mother would carry fried okra. And the preacher would always go on and on about Aunt Elvie's fried okra. Now that was Barbara's mother. Well, Barbara's mother died back in, I don't know, 95, 96, something like that. So no more okra. And he went on for years about how good that okra was, and he hated that, you know, nobody could fix it like Aunt Elvie. Well, this probably went on for 10 years, I guess. And he was going on about it one Sunday, and finally her nephew said, I hate to tell you, but Aunt Elvie never fried a single piece of okra. Barbara did it. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. So now well, I thought it was too, <laughs> and, and and she hasn't ever, uh, you know, cared anymore since then. I think this is the first time that that she's fixed fried okra. That is funny. She's honest. Yep. Nothing like a trunk coat the family, but, right? But oh gosh. Barbara said she wasn't ever going to tell him. Her her nephew, her nephew did. Well, that's the last time he knows the secret. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's funny. Oh, well. That's a great Y'all have fun, and we'll talk to you again. All right, hold Chicken. See you. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> back, back to the kitchen. Ah, uh, yeah. Okra. Oh, that, that really is funny. Yeah, great story. Yeah, 10 years. That's a long time to be hankering for for a food. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. 714-545-2071. That's our number. Would you like some some useless but fun stuff? Of course. Now, here's, here's one that I have no idea. I have no additional information other than this chunk. Salt helped build the Erie Canal. And here is the explanation. Mm. A tax of 12.5% on New York State salt plus tolls charged for ship for salt shipments paid for nearly half of the $7 million construction costs. I did not know New York State had salt. Well, it's probably all gone. It went. It went. It went out of the state once they built the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal. They shipped it out of the state. Yeah. Oh no. I. I had. I have no idea. Well, I think apparently have salt mines there somewhere. Uh, I mean, I think. I remember uh, taking it as a kid. We used to have these uh, different rocks, and we had like, a salt rock. So I guess you must have some salt mines somewhere. It in New York. What kind of salt? Yeah. You know, like sodium chloride or. Uh-huh. Something else. Yeah. Well, anyway, somebody from New York who knows about New York State salt, please call. <laughs> we are open. Okay. Now, here's something for Dennis. The winning term checkmate in chess yes. comes from an Arabic phrase, shamat, meaning the king is dead. <laughs> How about that? That's pretty appropriate. Okay, that's what you're checking. It's that's what you're checking. Yeah. Your king is gone. Your king has... Ding down, the king is dead. <laughs> Your king is murdered on checkmate. Okay, all right. Figs. This, this one will put cereal boxes out of business. Mm-hmm. 
Figs have the highest dietary fiber content of any common fruit, nut, or vegetable. Where Where is wheat? Is wheat? What is wheat? Well, it's, it's a grain. So it's not, it's not either fruit or vegetable, it's a grain. Hmm. What about corn? Corn is a grain. Corn, well, that corn is, is vegetable, so I always thought. Yeah, corn is a vegetable. Yeah. But it's a grain, right? When you take corn off the cob, it turns into a grain, or does it? Uh, I don't think so. A kernel of wheat and a kernel of corn. Yeah, but... So they're both veggies. Well, we don't count it that way, though. How, how come, well, we as collective, you don't count it that way. How does other, how do other people? Okay, I have to do homework. I, I, I think this is a Patricia homework project. Uh, yeah, when we play our show later, I'll go to <laughs> <get> work. <laughs> so, anyway, eat figs. It'll keep you regular. Mm -hmm. I wonder how many people eat figs anymore. I don't know. I mean, about the only time you ever eat, we ever eat figs around here is Fig Newtons. It's Fig Newtons, yeah. yeah. Dried figs. Well, dried figs are part of things like trail mix. So it gets mixed in. Well, I always think the trail mix are always bare, uh, like fruit, like, um, um, some form of cherry or berry that dries up. Be, yeah. Be sure of what my thinking is, but I could be definitely wrong. Hello there, you're on air. All right, I had to call back. Oh, good. The deal, the deal with the salt, I don't know that New York has salt mines. They are taxing salt. The sale of salt. It's just like a sales tax that we have now on everything you can imagine, whether it's made in Timbuktu or North Carolina or wherever and I think that's what it was on hmm. I don't know that they didn't have salt mines I'm not saying that I don't think so well, I don't remember hearing anything about salt mines in New York the line it, the the wording is a tax of 12.5 percent on New York State salt and yes but but there again, I still think it means sold in the state yeah. of New York because huh? they could not tax salt somewhere else. Well, it'd be like sort of the Boston tea. I mean, I know we had a tea party, but did we, did, did Boston really make their own tea? I think it was just uh, a, a, a uh, poor. They were just protesting the tax. Yeah. Well, the tea that went into the harbor was tea that was shipped over from England. Right. Right. And so we had a tax based upon. The import export, and it'd be somewhat. I think everything is somewhat the same principle. For I really salt. think it is, and I don't know that. I just think it is. Uh huh. Now the thing about grain. Yeah. I still say wheat is a grain. I think corn is too. Now I think they mature differently. When corn is fresh, so to speak, um, we do eat it as a vegetable, and that's the way I see it. But. When corn becomes a grain, it's when it is dried on the stalk, and then it is hard. It is a grain. It is fed for livestock feed, yeah. or at that point, it's ground into cornmeal. Well, don't we also get corn? I'm sure you know the things, but it's, I still say it's a grain. Don't we also use corn syrup? Isn't it in a form of way of sugar? Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, but there again, I, I think that is made before it is. 
gets dried and becomes what I would refer to it as a grain. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's just like yeah. uh, uh, all the different kind of oils that are made from um, different seeds. At the time they're a seed, I guess they are still a grain, so to speak, but when they um, more or less grow into a vegetable, for lack of a better term, um, they're not a grain at that point. What are beans then? Like, you know, we, we in the Midwest we make ethanol and everything. Are beans a really... Bean a, is a legume. L-E-G-U-M-E. So is that a, not a, a cousin of the grain? I would say it might be a cousin. I really wouldn't think of it as a grain, but like, for example, dried peas, dried uh, pinto beans. Yeah. Um, you know, they are more like a grain, but I don't think they're considered a grain, uh-huh. and I don't know why or where you draw the line. It's a legume, L-E-G-U-M-E. A peanut is a legume also. Um, is it legume? Oh, that, that uh, peanut is a goober pea. <laughs> I'm still learning. That, that is another one of your southern lessons. <laughs> oh, is it? And, and, and maybe you should look up the song and learn it, Eating Goober Peas. Eating Goober Peas, okay. It, it was around during the Civil War. I do not know how long before that. You don't hear it much anymore, but uh, it was still around when I was a kid. So when you were growing up during the Civil War, it was still heard, huh? Oh, yes, yeah. it was quite popular, but um, it, it's okay. been popular in my life, but I haven't heard it for years. Got it. Oh, okay, well, I will look up salt and I will look up wheat. We have to play a show in order for me to do my homework. And you be sure and look up the words to eating goober peas because one night I would very like, very much like to hear that song. She wants Patricia to sing. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> All right. She Stephen Foster. I was thinking about our interview with Johnny Western. Uh-huh. Okay, Johnny Western is the author and the singer of the television theme for Paladin, Have Gun, Will Travel. Paladin, Paladin. I was yeah. singing because I thought, well, if I have to sing, maybe I'll sing Paladin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say no, I'd, I'd really rather you sing goober pe- eating goober peas. I, I would, I would love to hear that. That make the your hip point. I am not going to sing goober peas. I am. I refuse. <laughs> I will not sing goober peas. Well, <clears throat> I don't know how. I don't know the song. <laughs> and I can look up the words, but I don't know how to sing it. Why, sure. <laughs> I'm sure they have the music, too. Why, sure. Why, sure. All right. That's all I got to contribute. I'm going back to making a coffee. You, you have a good day. You, too. Thanks. Have gun, will travel. See, that's a good song. That's a great song. That's a great... Oh, gosh. He has a voice that just... Echoes. Pouting, pouting, where have you rolled? Sure. Oh, gosh. Great voice. Great. Yeah. Maybe we can have him back one day, huh? I think that's totally up to Patricia. I think that would be just great. He was such a wonderful guest, and we're only 50% through, and I should have asked him to sing a couple of notes. A couple of notes. A couple of um, 
a, a stanza. Uh-huh. A stanza of the, uh, Have Gun Will Travel, the, the theme song. Stuff like that there. And Yeah, and stuff like that there. And he had already had a catastrophe that day. Mm. And he, I didn't ask him until the end. And, you know, I mean, we had just worn him out. Yeah. So when he comes back, I hope he will. I'll say, okay, we're opening the interview here. We're talking with Johnny Western. Please sing. Sing. Ow. <laughs> Do it now. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, what a voice. And he's still, uh, he's still performing. Yep. And he's still, you would have no, no trouble at all identifying his voice, which is so remarkable. He's in his 70s. He looks like he's in his 50s, and he sounds like he's in his 40s. What a way, huh? What a nice combination. I want, I want to be like that when I grow up. I do, I do, I do. Okay, honeybees. 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 Or yellow or blue flowers. What about that? Honeybees? Honeybees, yeah. They like yellow or blue flowers? Yellow, yeah. They're, they're, they'll be attracted more quickly to flowers if they are yellow or blue. They'll, they'll pick yellow or blue flowers first. I wonder why. I didn't ask them. Oh. So the next time you're out roaming the streets of um, Fort Myers, yeah, you'll interview a bee. I'll interview a beekeeper, <laughs> not a bee. <laughs> Maybe a, no, I won't say that. <laughs> oh, Patricia, you almost did it. Oh, okay, all right. Now the national anthems of Japan, Jordan, and San Marino have only four lines. No kidding. What is the question when I say the national anthems of Japan, Jordan, and San Marino have only four lines each? What is your question? Patricia? Yes? How in the world did you find all that out? No, that's not the question. The question is, did you know there was a country named San Marino? I did not. That was your question. But I think I've heard it on an Isle of a Mystery show. They talked about San Marino, but I, didn't, I never thought about it being a but country. San Marino in, in California is but, actually a country. Yeah, there was a, yeah so this, your show took place down in San Marino in Latin America or something. It's, it's uh, just north of Italy. Oh. I mean, there are a lot of San Marinos in the world, but the country of San Marino is the third smallest country in the world. Well, who are the two smallest? The Vatican and Monaco. The Vatican is a country? Uh-huh. I didn't know that. Yep, all by itself. Okay, so it's number three. I, I looked this stuff up when I when I read this. I said, what is a San Marino? I didn't know there was a country named San Marino. I know there's a San Marino, California, San Marino, mm-hmm. Florida. San, every place has a San Marino, but I didn't know there was a country. So it is the third smallest country in Europe, and... It is 24 square miles. Now, 24 miles sounds like a lot until you figure that a square mile, it, that is like six miles by four miles. That's okay. a very tiny country. Uh-huh, yeah. And, and its capital? San Marino. It's the city of San Marino. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I was thinking, because the art of mystery must have taken place. That's how I was familiar with the title. So. Uh, I, I think probably San Marino was... Uh, I don't know, north well, of... I guess it wasn't Latin America, I was thinking, it was just somewhere. I will, I will <laughs> bank on your side. There is something in Latin America that has a San Marino. Mm-hmm. 
System. They just fund, they finance the country through the weekly auto. Really? Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to go. Nice. Yeah. Okay, centipedes. Those crawly bugs with a lot of legs. Uh-huh. Always have an uneven number of pairs. Of legs? Uh-huh. They have pairs of legs, but but it's always an uneven number. So I guess they get gross pairs. When they lose one, I guess they have these extra ones. Well, I don't, it's not that they have extra ones, it's like they have um, anywhere from 15 to more than 100, but isn't this stupid, more than 171 pairs, how do you do that? so what is it, 173, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it, I mean, that's really silly, it's like somebody saying more than seven, more than seven, does that mean eight? I mean, 148? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, 15 legs, uh, 15 pairs of legs, 27 pairs of legs. Well, it, it makes sense, you know, they can walk on two, and then when those two get tired, they get popped on the other two and keep walking. Well, that's that's the way they walk. You know, they, they kind of walk in a wave. Ah. But there is no such thing as 16 pairs of legs or 28 pairs of legs. There, it's always an odd number. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. Dave Ruth was one of only two people to ever hit three home runs in a World Series game. Mm -hmm. And is the only one to have done it twice. Mm -hmm. Do you know who the other person was? Reggie Jackson. By golly, you knew that. How did you know that? I remember when he did it against the Dodgers. In 77, I think it was. Gee willikers. Okay, here's here's my other... Lee Dye is so sure with the last guy he hit the home run off of. Anyway. Who? Uh, who? There was a picture for the Dodger called Lee Dye Sosha. I think that was the last guy he hit. The, ho- the third home run on, on the game. Game six in 1977. <laughs> Alright, I might as well ask the rest of it. Babe Ruth did it. Was the only person to ever hit three home runs in a World Series? Yeah, I think I think this, I think the, this is the anniversary of Babe Ruth passing. It was in August, early August of '48, so we're. See now you're answering questions that I didn't ask. I know, but it's just the way my mind wanders. He did it twice. He did it in two different World Series. Uh huh. Hit three home runs in the same game. Okay. What were the years? Well, the most famous ones that. Maybe the 1932 World Series against Chicago Cubs? Nope. This isn't your baseball question, but um, I was going to say this, but as long as you're... It's all I'm thinking. Uh, well, it's not 32. Nineteen twenty-seven. 
You're right in the middle. It was 26 and 28. No kidding. 27 is his famous year because that's when he hit 60 home runs. That was his 60th? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, 1926, he hit three home runs in the World Series. Did they say against who? What team? Or? In a, and it was in a single game. Yeah. Correct. No, I, I don't have that. I think 28 against Philadelphia A's, but... Uh, it was 1926 and 1928. Wow. Twice. Wow. Juxtaposed with... The King of SWAT. Oh, yeah. The average American wedding. Yes. I, I just can't believe this. The average American wedding costs between 15 and $20,000. That would fund me for an entire year. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this makes elopement look good. I how many weddings are there, then, are there in America a year? That'd be interesting to figure out the, how much the economy gets affected by weddings. I know an awful lot of people have put off getting married. Yeah, but, you know, get Make living together look good, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, now, the approximate number of guests. All right, so we've got an average wedding costs fifteen dollars to $20,000. Yeah. How many guests on average? In, in America? Yeah. Fifteen million? No, no, no! At a single wedding. <laughs> oh. I'm so sorry. I said I wasn't clear. The average American wedding costs fifteen to twenty thousand dollars and has how many guests? Oh, guests, guests, people attending. Yes. A hundred. Hundred and eighty-eight. That's a lot of people. Well, and just think of it. You know what? Well, hundred eighty-eight you know, people. You, you, I probably do. <laughs> No, 18,088. But, you know, I, I bet you, if you broke down the wedding, it's got to be the sit-down meal that drives up the prices. Oh, sure. You know? Well, if I took 188 people out to dinner... And if you do it at a hotel, it's a minimum of 30 bucks a plate. I guess there. There you go. You know. So if you make them stand up and feed them Twinkies and McBurgers... Yeah? Well, I was just thinking, you know, um, I think, you know, my mom and dad just celebrated the 48th wedding anniversary the Thursday. And I think they, uh, they had it at the home. You know, they had the, uh, the, uh, dinner, you know, the, the dinner at home. Uh-huh. And I, and I think most weddings I attend nowadays, they go at some restaurant or some banquet hall. So, you know, all that drives up the prices. You know, just, but how many people have a big enough house anymore to have a 200 of your closest friend to come over to see you? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I have a piece of information about John Barrymore. Ah, uh, yeah. Ah. Sweet Prince. We will, we will do this later, but John Barrymore... Died on May 29, 1942. Did you know he was a cartoonist? No. He was a cartoonist. Hmm. For a New York newspaper. So, I need to, um, to play a show. Alrighty. Can we do that? We can do that. Wanna play the show that we sent over? Yeah. The Do Danger Dr. Danfield? Danger Dr. Danfield. Okay, let me get over the computer. And we'll fire up this puppy. 
this is the candidate from Frank as one of the worst shows ever made. Uh-huh. And I think he is absolutely correct. So we will ask people when we come back. Whether or not Frank was correct. Danger, Dr. Danfield. One of the episodes. We will be there. I'm just firing up the email computer here. Okay. Um, let's see here. Uh, let me. I move the microphone over here. Outlook Express address book list view list view. 78 hour request at quicket.78online.com. One of 229. And how? August 14th. While while you're doing that, August 14th is National Creamsicle Day. So I I think that's a pretty good deal. Okay. We find Dr. Dan Field cutting a clipping from the morning paper. What's so important about that story that it rates being clipped out? Well, here's what caught my attention, Rusty. Let me read it to you. Mrs. Fraser's strange phobia has become a legend in the neighborhood of Wolf's Head Bay. Her refusal to leave the home that she and her husband occupied for many years, coupled with the fact that neighbors report seeing a bobbing light and hearing strange sounds coming from nearby Murdoch's swamp, have lent credence to the theory that the swamp is haunted with the ghost of the vanished millionaire, Alec Frazier. Who ever dreamed up that old wives' tale? Well, do you think it's an old wives' tale, Lester? Of course I do. I suppose next we'll hear that the ghost of old man Frazier was seen walking through the village without a head on his shoulders. <laughs> Be an interesting spectacle, wouldn't it? These are the radio programs of 14 August, 1945. This is a special episode in the continuing chronicle of radio's first half century. We call it Same Time, Same Station. This is KRLA Pasadena. This is closed circuit from New York. Morton Downey for Coca-Cola follows. Morton Downey for Coca-Cola follows. The announcer at the mutual station that noontime gave the 12.15 station break, then switched to the network. His closed-circuit message, Tinny in his earphone, told him that the Coca-Cola program would be there. From the Mutual Newsroom in New York, we have just received word that the President has just called in the press to his office. We have just received word that the President has called the press and radio into his office just now. For the news, listen to your Mutual Station. Transcribe date we have each day for an informal get-together. 
It's a simple program of song and poetry with Jimmy Lytell and his orchestra, the listening lady to represent you, and the romantic voice of Morton Downey. Hello, Morton. Why the little hatchet? Oh, just atmosphere for my first song, listening lady, which is going to be this. office but to meet with Secretary Ross and not with the President. Presidential Secretary Charles Ross has called in press and radio to meet with Mr. Ross and not with the President. For the news, listen to your mutual station.
4 p.m. G-R-U-E-N. Gruen Precision Watch Time. See the Gruen very thin. W-E-A-F, New York. The National Broadcasting Company interrupts this program to bring you a special broadcast. From the NBC newsroom in New York, here's a bulletin. The Japanese minister to Switzerland arrived at the Swiss Foreign Office just a few minutes ago. He remained there for only a brief time and left a note. Shortly after the Japanese minister left, United States Minister Leland Harrison arrived at the Swiss Foreign Office and presumably is in conference at this moment. Whether a note was delivered to our minister, we do not know. But NBC is right now in contact with our correspondent in Bern, and shortly we hope to be able to bring you a direct broadcast on latest developments in the Swiss capital. This bulletin came to you from the NBC newsroom in New York. Keep tuned to your NBC station for the later news. Once again, Mary Noble, backstage wife. The story of a little Iowa girl who marries America's most handsome actor, Larry Noble. Matinee idol of a million other women. And the story of the change war brings as Mary finds herself a war wife. You can't expect friends to tell you why your smile is unattractive. But you can expect friends and strangers to respond if your smile is cheerful and flashing with the beauty of perfectly clean teeth. The Checkers, the Saturday Evening Post, even the Tuesday night radio shows like Fibber McGee and Inner Sanctum were forgotten. The word was out it would soon be official. Robert Trout, CBS News, remembers this time, this day, very well. After a couple of years in England, before the D-Day landings, I found myself back in New York, here in Studio 9 again, as the war followed its tortured path to victory. When the Germans collapsed, the center of our world broadcasting was here. Many experts said it would take years to conquer the Japanese. But three months after the day of victory in Europe, Japan was falling. I moved out of Studio 9, just outside the door where the news machines are, the teletypes, and a direct telephone from the White House hung on the wall. There, to be able to broadcast the great news a few seconds faster than if I had remained inside the studio, I sat in a chair in the newsroom for four days and nights waiting. And then the word came. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations, on land, on the sea, in the air, and to the four corners of the earth, are united and are victorious. Information on a special line from the White House, and now it's beginning to come in on the wire services, too. President Truman announced it at 7 p.m. tonight, just a minute ago, and now a flash, MacArthur appointed Jap boss over the Emperor of Japan. AFI, Los Angeles, Earl C. Anthony Incorporated, California distributor of Packard Motor Cars. And now we are going to bring you a special commentary on this news by Mr. H.V. Cortenborn, speaking from the NBC newsroom in New York. Mr. Cortenborn. Good evening, everybody. 
And tonight I feel like talking like Gertrude Stein. The war is over. The war is over. The war is over. Peace has come. Peace has come. Peace has come. And so we come to the close or near the close of a momentous day. And what a curious day it's been in the history of the war. Those of us who followed the press and radio bulletins since the day began have lived in a twilight zone between war and peace. Not long after midnight, Domei, the official Japanese news agency, told the world that Japan had surrendered. When radio's instantaneous transmission carried that news to the 48 states, the celebrations began. They became riotous in many cities as the morning wore on. But there was no more news. Early reports that the surrender noted reached Switzerland were denied. For hours, there was a feeling of frustration. Then, in mid-afternoon, came a broadcast from NBC's Max Jordan, which electrified those who heard it. Scoring one of the big beats of the war, Jordan gave us the first real news of the day. The Japanese note had reached Bern, he said, and would be at the White House in two more hours. It accepted our surrender demand in principle, and those who knew what the note contained believed the war was over. In a later broadcast, Jordan revealed that a fairly lengthy note had been compressed into 160 Swiss code words, which RCA transmitted from Switzerland in just 12 minutes. The note reached the State Department at 6.4 p.m. Eastern War Time. The White House had already learned its general contents from Leland Harrison, our minister to Switzerland, and at 7 o'clock tonight, the news reporters who had been waiting for days around the White House were called into the President's office, and the President gave them the momentous news. Well, looking back a little bit, 66 years ago today, Patricia and I will be with you very soon. operations to surrender arms 
and with you such other orders as may be required by the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces for the execution of the above-mentioned terms. Signed, Togo. At this time, we should pay a tribute to the men from this country, from the Dominions, from India and the colonies, to our fleets, armies and air forces that have fought so well in the arduous campaigns against Japan. Our gratitude goes out to all our splendid allies. And above all, the United States, without whose prodigious efforts this war in the East would still have many years to run. Here at home, you have a short rest from the unceasing exertions which you have all borne without flinching or complaint for so many dark years. I have no doubt that throughout industry generally, the government's lead in the matter of victory holidays will be followed. And that tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday, will everywhere be treated as days of holiday. This is John W. Van der Kirk in the NBC newsroom in New York. As all the world must now know, at 7 p.m. just 15 minutes ago, the governments of the United States of America, of Great Britain, of the Soviet Union, and of China accepted the surrender of Japan. This was a statement issued by President Truman in the White House just a few minutes ago. The proclamation of VJ Day must wait upon the formal signing of the surrender terms by Japan. Simultaneously, President Truman disclosed that Selective Service is taking immediate steps to slash current inductions from 80,000 down to 50,000 a month. And now we take you to NBC in Guam. This is George Thomas Foster reporting from Victory Base in the Pacific. This is Guam. Nerve and Brain Center of Fleet Operations in the Pacific. This is Guam, and the war is over. This is the capital of the Marianas. And it was from the Marianas that the bombers flew, cradling the atomic bomb. And the atomic bomb is the sledgehammer that walloped Hiroshima and Nagasaki off the map and promised more. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we take you to NBC in Bern. Today, on VJ Day, Switzerland was the hub of the world, at least for a few exciting hours. Ever since Sunday, we had all been waiting with tense expectation for that word from Tokyo, which was to seal the fate of the land of the rising sun. All right, we're going to turn down a little VJ Day news, and here's my, my bud. She back. Hello. Hello, Alden. Hello, Patricia. I found something really interesting today that has to do with VJ Day. Yes. State of Florida, the government, uh, the, the state of Florida, the governor in the state of Florida actually issued a proclamation that related to VJ Day. Uh, May I tell you? Please do. Whereas the announcement of victory against Japan and the final end of the destructive worldwide conflict in which we have been engaged since 1941, will be received by the people of Florida, of the United States of America, and the entire civilized world with gratitude and thanksgiving that we have been spared further damage and sorrow. And 
Whereas the solemnity and dignity of this occasion should not be marred by any boisterous conduct on the part of the thoughtless or by any tragic incident that can be afforded. Now, therefore, I, Millard F. Caldwell, by virtue of the authority vested in me as governor of the state of Florida, proclaim VJ Day in Florida as the 24 hours next succeeding the announcement that surrender of Japan upon the proclamation of the President of the United States, that hostilities are at an end, and urge that all liquor package stores, bars and tap rooms, and other places dispensing alcoholic beverages remain closed during that period. Can you believe this? I sure can. Different time we live in, don't mm. There's more! <laughs> After this solemn and thankful, I call upon the sheriffs, their deputies, and other law enforcement officers throughout the state to cooperate in making VJ Day an orderly, dignified, and law-abiding in accordance with the spirit and intents of the, this proclamation. That was the proclamation of the government, of the governor of Florida, Millard F. Caldwell. Wow. Keep the bars and package stores closed. Yep. I never heard of a package store. That's a new term on me. That is a new term. A package store was a freestanding liquor store. Okay. And you would go in and come out with a package, and they called it a package store. So maybe that's where the brown little bag came from or whatever. The brown bag, yeah. yeah. You would get a brown bag with your bottle of wine just sit under the bridge. Ah, uh, yeah. The package store. I don't know where the term originated, though. That's a great question. Mm-hmm. Package store. Sounds like a five and dime or a little, you know, notion store. Uh-huh. It's not. It's a liquor store. I know. I guess my, uh, my mom, one of my mom and brothers, my mom and uncle best friend, Joe Nuss, ran a five and dime, and it was Benjamin Franklin was the name of the change. Franklin five and, five and dime store. Uh-huh. Five and ten cent store. Yep. Ah, uh, yes. Good stuff. Well, anyway, I thought that was, I just came across that by accident. I was looking for something about VJ Day. Right. And that just popped up. And Very I, nice. Wow. Good, good stuff. Yeah. I mean, really, it, it was nice because really it, the spirit of it was correct. Yep. That, it, as, as it said, law-abiding in accordance with the spirit and intent of this proclamation. Makes you wonder nowadays where we have riots in the street that people will bite stores and streets anymore. I don't know. I don't know. For something like this, we've never had something like this in our lifetime. No. No, I just think of all these cities after the sporting team wins and they want to break, burn down the city, practically. No! I know, and it's happening in London this week. Mm-hmm. Ah, just awful stuff. I've, I've never, well, I don't want to get into a political discussion, and I'm afraid that's that's why that would, be, Go. would yeah. wind up, but it, okay. it just always baffled me that... Burning up your own stuff doesn't seem like much of a protest. Uh-uh. You no? Know? Nope. You understand what I'm what yep. I'm saying, and I might not be saying it particularly well. But I know. I do. You do. You're always, see, you're always on my same wavelength. I know. Okay, I got stuff. I got stuff. John Barrymore. Oh, yes. John Barrymore. Good night, sweet prince. Good night. Yep. Good night, sweet prince. John Blythe Barrymore. He was born in 1882. Bless his heart. Was the youngest of three siblings, all of whom caught the acting bug. 
Okay, before turning to the movies, however, John was an ambitious young man who worked as a cartoonist with a New York newspaper. He also moved to Paris for a time to acquire some worldly experience. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't read that part. (laughs) My goodness. Well, anyway, he was a cartoonist. I thought that was pretty cool. Wow. Doesn't say what kind of cartoons, you know, whether it was political or... Yeah. Funny yeah. sheet type stuff. Just, I bet you Google. I bet you could find some somewhere. <sighs> homework, homework, homework. Yes, Walden. I will some more. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you would like me to? No, I just like to keep you. That's all. Oh, uh, well. Wow. Well, what we missed on Saturday, we we have some really special days in August. Mm-hmm. And what we missed on the 13th was Blame Someone Else Day. Oh, we don't do that around here. Why not? Everybody else does. I know, but we're different. The Saturday Night Show's different. In the 1960s, there was a book written by Eric Byrne. He's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. And it was called The Games People Play. And one of the games was the See What You Made Me Do game. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. You'd be out in the kitchen minding your own business. Uh-huh. Somebody breaks a bottle in the garage. And, yep. See what you made me do. Yep. What do you mean? I just, well, I was, this is playing somebody else day. This mm-hmm. is the see what you made me do day. Mm-hmm. All right. Sunday. No, the, four, the 14th is Sunday. Monday, the 15th. Yes. Is National Relaxation Day. One more for that. But it's also National Failures Day, but I don't know what that means. What say you? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea what that means. National Failures Day. I guess you can celebrate your failures. I guess so. That's why you're relaxing. Which is pretty stupid, but (laughs) I don't know. You know, some of these are... All right. So, Tuesday is Bratwurst Festival Day. Oh, okay. And Wednesday is National Thrift Shop Day. We can go shopping. And Thursday is Bad Poetry Day. Oh. Very good at bad poetry. Okay. Now, oh, poetry and I just have never seen eye to eye. Now, Friday, this is really good. <laughs> Friday is National Potato Day. Potato Day! How do you get to be on National Potato Day? You become a potato head. <laughs> oh, you know what, Mr. Potato Head? Okay, well, wait, wait I have one more. I have one more. Uh-huh. Next Saturday? Yeah. Next Saturday is National Radio Day. Oh, we got a special guest at the top of the show for about two or three minutes. We're going to call Frank Pussy on your birthday next Saturday. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Just happy birthday. Well, how appropriate is National Radio Day? Perfect. Just perfect. That will be great. Does he know you're going to call? Yep. I told him we're going to do the show Friday, and we're going to call him back Saturday night on his actual birthday, too. He was okay with that. Oh, yeah. Ah, that's good. In fact, everybody... It is remar- Frank is now eating sandwiches. <gasps> that is just incredible. It's, in, it's just amazing. He's eating meals. They're going to go ahead. They want to make sure before they take the feeding tube out. Uh-huh. But he's eating sandwiches now. That's incredible. That's yeah, pretty mean, remarkable. And you consider how, how serious, Yes. how seriously ill he was. Yes. He has worked so incredibly hard. Yes. This, this is not... Something that just happened as a course of recovery. Nope. You, you can get stitches in your finger, and whether you sit up and behave yourself or go to bed, it's still going to heal. <laughs> this is something that required concentration, yep. effort, 
every single day working at this. Exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting to recover from a stroke and especially to put in the kind of work that he did. Right, for a year and a half. Uh Uh-huh. Just amazing. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. So so they're going to see, they're going to test it again for four months, make sure if they they don't want to miscalculate because they want to take it out, Uh you know, and sew them up. So they want to make sure by eating sandwiches. Good for him. Yeah. Good for him. Mm. Even that, you know, when when you say eating a sandwich, I mean, obviously he had trouble swallowing. Mm-hmm. Um, the muscles in his throat were right. affected. Right. But on top of that, digesting this kind of food when his system has been accustomed to liquids yep. and you know I mean it, it's just every system no matter what happens every single system is affected right and he's just worked so hard I, I just am so proud of him yep so proud of him so I have a special location a special site and I'll, I'll have to send the link to you okay and give you some navigation suggestions okay. that your equipment might get tripped up or photographs with links buried in them and that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But it is called the Veterans History Project. Hmm. Recollections and accounts of people who were in World War II. Wow. And it is just so extraordinary to go through some of these histories. I have done it before. I've got some information that I pulled down. Mm-hmm. But they... They really put it together very nicely. They've got um, pictures with little blocks of copy underneath and then a link to the very large account and recollections and diary notes. So with this one, uh, Robert Balfour. Okay. When Robert Balfour, this is a little story, and then you can go to his, his page where he shared all of this information about his experiences and what it meant to him to have peace finally. But this one was really touching. When Robert Balfour first tried to enlist in the Navy, he was rejected due to bad eyesight. So the Wisconsin native memorized the eye chart. Oh, man. Uh Uh-huh. He took the test again and eventually made his way onto Admiral William Bull Halsey's staff. Mm. On September 2nd, 1945, Balfour witnessed the formal Japanese surrender ceremony aboard the USS Missouri. Wow. After the war, he became a trusted advisor to Minnesota Governor Harold Stassen and Dwight Eisenhower. To find out more, visit his page, and you can go directly to his page and wow. get the entire File. account of you know, his time in the military mm. and his experiences. But it is just such a wonderful sight to visit and go back, you know, just stop by and read a little bit, and, and it's one that you can just keep going back to and appreciate what these people did for us and the recollections and the history accounts. It is www.loc.gov slash vets, V-E-T-S. So if anybody wants that, give me an email, and I will send that link to you. It's floridawriter at hotmail.com, and the project is the Veterans History Project at www.loc.gov. 
G-O-V slash vets, V-E-T-S. And it's just a wonderful site to visit. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Have some fun stuff. Aww. Want a little bit of fun stuff? Sure. The changes to the White House, the appearance of the White House, and changes that have occurred over the years. Mm -hmm. President William Taft converted the White House stables into a garage for four cars in 1909. <laughs> that was pretty good. Pretty nice, yeah. Uh -huh. Dwight D. Eisenhower was an avid golfer, and he had a putting green installed uh, on the White House lawn. Okay. Then he banished squirrels. <laughs> That's what it says. He also banished squirrels from the grounds because they were ruining his green. <laughs> How do you banish squirrels? You give, it, you give a presidential executive order. I mean, they didn't hurt the squirrels, did they? Well. I don't want to talk about it. They probably gave a, a, a one-way ticket to... <laughs> How do you give squirrels their walking paper? <laughs> this is good. Okay, President Richard Nixon disliked the press, so it was odd that he ordered the filling of the White House swimming pool, thus giving reporters more room when covering White House events. <laughs> he filled up a swimming pool. Can you imagine that? No. No. Boy, oh boy, no. you know, craziness knows no bounds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just nuts to fill in a swimming pool to give people more room to stand. I mean, it's not exactly like... They're built on a postage stamp there. No. You know? That's true. Gee willikers. Okay. Soon after Nixon resigned in 1974, the new president, Gerald Ford, had another pool dug. <laughs> Go there. I'll show you, he says. Uh-huh. Too much fun. Okay, you want your Stump Walden question? What do it. Want to do it? Let's do it. Yeah, okay. Which theme song? Included the words, there's a store of healthiness handy, might size, always on the go. This one is a stinker. Well, I'm trying to think of the only way this is way I'll get think, I'll get to walk everybody how my mind is thinking. I'm trying to think of a radio show who had a um a, a farm a health product a, a tied to it, and I figured that might clue me into the radio show. Very good thinking. Yeah. Not so. right, but good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm serious. If it really is, it makes a whole lot of sense. But my hint is that it's wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> is it a show that I would know? Yes. Yes, it's the middle of a theme song. Hmm. Give me the words again. There's a store of healthiness handy. Might size always on the go. How about Little Orphan Annie? That's exactly it. I don't believe. talk ever that I can remember about Little Orphan Annie except to talk about Ovaltine. That's true. Well, I was hoping to have uh, Shirley Bell on the show, 
by the time I was thinking about week, the, uh, calling her the week that she passed away. Mm. Yeah, it would have been nice to have or Orphan Annie. Yeah. It is so and, sad that we are losing so many of our... Are, you know, but... Um, Interesting, I know a gentleman who was on the show, still with us, he lives in Seattle, his name is Bob Hudson, and I think he was involved in the San Francisco version. There were two different versions. You had the famous one out of Chicago, which most people had, and then the other three, they also had a run in San Francisco, which took care of the West Coast. We just one of those shows, they had uh-huh. two different casts as part of it. But yeah, we are we are losing them. Little Orphan Annie, I can't believe you got it. I can't believe you got it. That one was really a stinker. It, I have no other way to put it. It was a stinker. I wrote this out, and I thought, what are you doing to this poor man? <laughs> <laughs> and you got it anyway. Thanks. Oh, boy, I'm going to have to work harder again. <laughs> okay, here's your history question. Okay. I want... Both the significance and the person who was responsible for the significance. What is the significance of Sutter's Mill in American history, and who was responsible for the event? Well, Sutter's Mills were, um, we had the Battle of the Civil War kicked off in April of 1641. Sutter's Mill. Shutter's Mill. Oh, would that be the discovery of gold in California? Yes. I, I've been there. Okay. Good thing you helped me here. So now we've got the, I, well, you know, it, it sounds, and especially on the phone, that there are so uh, many no, I guess we're thinking, what, what, what do we have? The battle at Civil War. What was the name of that? Um, uh, Fort. That was Fort, Fort Sumter. Okay. Shutter, yeah, Shutter Mill is in, uh, in the gold, it's in the gold territory. Right. We're and in 18, probably 1848 or so. That's exactly right. Okay, now who discovered it? Um, it was a guy who took his knife to cut into the soil, and I don't remember his name. I think it's a, a Spaniard, if I recall. No, it was James W. Marshall. Yep, that makes sense. Yep. Do you recognize that name? I do, and I, I've been, I've been where, um, there was like a town, and I've been there where would they discuss, uh, you know, some theories and everything, and we went through, and this is where you saw glass blowing and different things. You try to replicate what the town was like. Oh, sorry, really, a, a living history? Uh-huh. How neat. Yeah. I copied a little bit of information. See, silly me, I thought Sutter, you know, the Sutter family who owns Sutter Mill, or, or I mean, they own Sutter Mill, or Sutter's Mill. Uh, there really was a Sutter's. I thought it was the Sutter's who discovered the the, the gold, but it wasn't. It was James Marshall discovered it in 1848 on the South Fork of the American River. Yeah, the gold right. discovery site, located in the still visible trail of Sutter's Sawmill mm-hmm. in present-day Coloma, California, Correct. is one of the most significant historic sites in the nation. Correct. This event led to the greatest mass movement of people in the Western Hemisphere and was the spark that ignited the spectacular growth of the West during the ensuing decades. We call it the 49er Trail. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and the 49ers were the, you know, it, that's really, well, 49er, that was Oh Susanna. Oh Susanna, don't yep. quite for me. That 49er. Yep. 
Yeah. But it was discovered in 40... Well, I guess it would take a little while for them to get all geared up. <laughs> it didn't take too long for them to make it a state, though. Once they discovered gold, they quickly made it a state. Okay, it was a state within a year or so. Uh-huh. Didn't want to lose all that capital. All right, you want, you want your baseball question? Sure. I really want to give you this baseball question. All right. It's the dumbest question I have ever asked you. <laughs> Are you ready for the dumbest question I ever asked you? Oh. It wasn't dumb to the guy who did it. Um, who, <laughs> I can't even ask this. Who was the last major league baseball second baseman to play without a glove? Hmm. I don't know if I know the name, but it would be probably before the 1920s. Uh, would it be Eddie Collins? No. What, it wasn't Roger Hornsby? No, it wasn't. Annapolisio? No. <laughs> These are good names. I know. I'm trying to think of famous second basements of years gone by. I don't I don't know any of these names. That's okay. No, I mean, this is good for me. I learned. Uh -huh. Oh, you can look up Roger Hornby, one of the best hitters of all time, who played second base. Um, I don't know, Patricia. Well, I have a little bit of information about this. All right. The first question I have is, what kind of a common sense person would stand at second base without a glove? Well... He probably figured his fingers were going to be okay. They didn't need anything to smack down those balls. I mean, not not even his fingers, the palms of his hands. He could have fractured his hands. Well, think of the what? days when my dad was playing college football. They didn't have face masks. It was just, no, you know, just a leather helmet. Right, and of course the, the catchers didn't even wear padding yeah. on face masks. Yeah. That wasn't, um, that was a fairly recent addition. I'm not <laughs> talking S-words. I refuse <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what really shook me up about this one was not that somebody would play second base without a glove, mm -hmm. but the question was, who was the last second baseman, which means there were other people doing this. Oh, wow. <sighs> okay, his name was John Alexander, nicknamed Bid McPhee. Okay. Bid McPhee. Lived... <laughs> I don't know why, but he lived a long time. He was 1859 to 1943. He had a good long life. Yeah. He was born before Abraham Lincoln was shot. He was born before Abraham Lincoln was elected. Yeah, he was before the Civil War. That's amazing. Isn't that remarkable? That's amazing. 19th century Major League Baseball player. He played 18 seasons in the majors from 1882 until 1899 all for the Cincinnati Reds. Shortly after retiring as a player in 1899, he rejoined the Reds as a manager. He wow. was to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2000. He's known more for his fielding than his hitting. Mm. He was known for being the Yahoo on second base with unprotected hands. McPhee was the last second baseman to play without a glove. He soaked his hands in salt water to toughen them. Excuse me. Wouldn't it have been easier just to stop by the sporting goods store and gloves? I mean, Walden. Yeah. You know why I don't talk S words now? Yeah. Gee, Willikers. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. Okay, I have a brain teaser for you. Sure. So what you got? I'm crazy. This one is really good. 
Okay. What seven-letter word has hundreds of letters in it? What seven-letter words? One one word. Mm -hmm. Seven letters. Mm -hmm. Has hundreds of letters in it. Alphabet. Alphabet is not a seven-letter word, but that was my first choice. <laughs> well, I can't we are definitely. I can't. We're definitely meant to be together. We have the same brain waves here. Let's see here. I, but I did get the answer. No matter how hard I squashed, I couldn't get alphabet in seven letters. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how about letters? No, it's got seven. It, it's got it's L -E -T -T -E -R -S. a letter word. Yes, letters. No, letters is seven letters, but that's not it. Okay. It, it has it has hundreds of letters in it. But oh, you know what? how about post off? No, that's too many words. You know what? Yeah. Letters. They have hundreds of letters in them. Yeah. How about, well, how about something to do with the post office? So let's see. Mailbox? Let's see. That's seven words. That's seven letters, and that's exactly the answer. Uh, you are so good. Your deductive reasoning is making me crazy. <laughs> well, it is. You're laughing at me. No, I just think you, I just think that's cute. Oh. <laughs> I get my chicken after you. <laughs> my chicken. For anyone who missed this, Ralph sent us chickens. The gnarly rubber I know. that you see yeah. people in cartoons chasing cats with. That's <laughs> too funny. And the thing is big. It's 25 inches long. I got mine right here. He doesn't make a noise. I guess I have to create his own noise. My chicken is going to sit next to Alvin. Ah, uh, see? Keep each other company. Patricia's menagerie is really starting to develop. That's right. Yeah. I've got little critters out there. I know. And I've got a little glass kitty next to it. Aww. Uh, little kitty. I like kitties. Okay, well, we can do one of two things. Okay. I can tell you the kinds of words that retailers use to make people buy stuff, mm -hmm. or we can play a show. It's your choice. Well, why don't I save the stuff about well, buying for next week? All righty. Because it's kind of long. Okay. Really interesting stuff in it. <laughs> <laughs> but they work, you know? Gosh darn it, you look at it and say, oh man, I bought something with that word last week. <laughs> We can do that. So okay. if we could play a Fibber McGee and Molly that okay. we didn't get to play last week, the name of it is Bill Smith, an old friend from Peoria Visits. And this one is it's kind of interesting. I, I thought, uh, did you have a chance to listen to this one or is this? I have not. Kept, uh, I haven't gotten over there. Okay. Um, I don't know if this is the original show. It's Armed Forces. It says it was rebroadcast. This is I got it now. It's, it's the Armed Forces. I, what I was doing, looking for the NBC copy. Uh, and nobody has it. 
This is the Armed Forces. Right. It hit, it hit the rebroadcast. It was a rebroadcast. It's from February 2nd, 1944, and it's rebroadcast for the American Armed Forces. And it turned out to be a really nifty thing to listen to. Because um, at the... It, it just... You know, they, they give a, a lead-in, and it has to do with the war. Everything has war-related comments in here. Molly sends Fibber to the store. Um, to get home, to bring home a couple of items, which he messes up to begin with, of course. And instead, he comes home with someone who stopped him on the street, glad-handed him until Fibber decided it was a former schoolmate from Peoria. And I think that this is a particularly fun show because it was rebroadcast to the armed forces, and that meant that there could be no advertising in it. So the Johnson Wax commercial in the middle is cut. However, Harlow Wilcox very artfully stays in a part in the middle, and it doesn't sound like anything is missing. They just slid right into it. I, I thought it was really a remarkable piece of editing. Mm. It was good stuff. So they talk about meat points, which, of course, relates to the war. They, you needed ration points to buy meat. Molly put an extra blanket on the bed for their guest in case it turns cold tonight. They wouldn't know that it was going to turn cold or stay warm because you didn't get any weather reports <laughs> during World War II. Yeah. And at the end um, is a status report on hometown America during the war. It, it just all comes together and gives people a snapshot of what, of what was going on. Ransom Sherman is here as Sigmund Wellington, which is one of my favorite characters. I just love him. Now, this was apparently at the beginning because he didn't have his speech characteristics perfected. But when he did one, he he was the one who would start doing this. He would split his words and put emphasis in all of the wrong places. And he did this in the middle of a sentence. He did his favorite, his famous Sigmund Wellington deal. And some man in the audience just lost it. I mean, if they didn't pay him on the way out for laughing, he was absolutely broken up. He couldn't, he, he just lost it. And it was so fun to listen to. I went back and I listened to it a second time. So in the middle of that, when Sigmund Wellington comes in and he does his little thing, listen for this man in the audience. There's a second part in here later on in the show where he lets loose again, but this one is priceless. So that is my story. I am sticking to it. We're going to be listening to old friends from Peoria visits from February 22nd, 1944. Okay, we will be back next week. Okay. Have a safe week, everybody. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. So I will talk while I get the thing queued up here. Okay. Give me a second, folks. I gotta go down. Oh, well, you keep doing that because I've got some information here um, about the rationing and Victory Gardens. Somebody asked about Victory Gardens one night. The Department of Agriculture created the official program of Victory Gardens. And by the summer of 1943, there were 20 million Victory Gardens throughout the country. 20 million gardens. Can you imagine that? These gardens produce 
40% of all the vegetables grown in America. They were grown in people's backyards. Another little piece? Give me one second, Sure, I'm going to give you another piece of information while you're working on that. Doctors and what they called essentials, people who absolutely had to drive, like I guess police officers coming in from the country or something like that, but doctors, they were allowed additional gas every month, but they had to have their tires checked every three months and recertified. I had never heard that before. And the final thing, the king and queen of England had ration camps. They were also on rationing, and they observed it. They got right through it. Want me to keep going? List view four four zero two 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 Bill Smith Old School Chum from Peoria dot MP three seven point oh six MD one of one Windows Media Player default view Windows Media Player. For you soldiers, sailors, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen, it's time for Billy Mills and his orchestra, the King's Men, Ransom Sherman, Arthur Q. Bryan, and Fibber McGee and Molly. One of the things that Mrs. McGee is never quite sure about is whether it's more satisfactory to send her husband to the grocery store or go herself. At the moment, however, she's trying it the hard way once again. As we meet, Fibber McGee and Molly. Oh, let me get that again. A loaf of bread, a half a dozen eggs, and a can of corn. Is that all? That's all. Mm -hmm. Shall I write it down on a slip of paper for you? Why, certainly not. My gosh, anybody that couldn't remember three simple little items like a loaf of bread and a can of corn and a... And a, and a that other, uh, Half a dozen eggs. Half a dozen eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. How about some meat? We're all out of meat points. Okay, that's what we'll have then. What? Leg and nothing. <laughs> well, here I go, laughing and scratching. Corn, eggs, and bread. Corn, eggs, and bread. They have the phone call put on our bill, too. What phone call? The one where you called me up and asked me what was it besides eggs and bread. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Snooky. I got it. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Let me see. Cornbread and eggs. Cornbread and eggs. Cornbread and eggs. <laughs> Seems to me there were three things she wanted. 
Eggs, cornbread, and something else. Oh, well, she'll be expecting me to call up anyway. <laughs> Say, excuse me, but uh, could you tell me what... Well, I'll be a... If it isn't good, well, by George, it certainly is. Well, how are you, old man? Why, uh, I'm fine. Well, I set these drips down a minute. Uh -huh. Yeah, put her there. Boy, it's grand to see you again after all these years. You're looking great. Well, thanks. I, uh, I'm, uh, well, you're looking great, too. <laughs> it's been so many years since we met. I can't believe it's really you. Oh, yeah, it's me, all right. <laughs> but uh, you, girl, uh, you filled out a little, though. Yeah. Broader in the shoulders. <laughs> A little touch of gray hair, very distinguished. Oh, it's nothing. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's, say, uh, you remember me, don't you? Bill Smith, back in school? Bill Smith? You mean back in Peoria? Yeah, Peoria. <laughs> Good old Peoria. What size we used to have in the... To say you are, I, I mean, I haven't made a mistake, have I? Your name is... McGee. Fibber McGee. You had it right. Uh, I'm sure I have. <laughs> By George, this is great, isn't it? Say, whatever happened to that little girl you were going with, the pretty one? Uh, she lived over by the, uh, on the other side. You, know, you mean Molly Driscoll? Why, shucks, I married her, Bill. No kidding. Yeah. You lucky son of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a great little girl, that Molly. Well, tell her old Bill Smith said to say hello. Hey, why don't you tell her yourself? We live right here. Come on in. She'd love to meet anybody from the old hometown. Oh, I hate to barge in on her like this. Horse feathers. Hey, Molly, look who I found. Walking the streets like an old bum. Remember Bill Smith we used to go to school with in Peoria? Well, how do you do, I'm sure, Mr. Smith. Molly, well, you haven't changed a bit. And don't call me Mr. Smith, either. It was Bill when we were both in, uh, and, uh, what was the name again? The tough teacher we had that... Miss uh, Fadish. Miss Fadish. Yes. <laughs> ah, that's the one. What a woman. She had a face like a tired cantaloupe. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, you look wonderful. If I hadn't happened to be passing an old fibber, hadn't recognized I knew you the minute I saw you, Bill. Of course, I got a terrific memory for faces. So uh, I... McGee, uh, uh, why do you let Mr. S uh, why do you let Bill stand there with those suitcases? Give the man a chair. Oh, for God's sake. Here, sit down. Sit down, Billy boy, sit down. Billy boy. <laughs> I haven't heard that since the old days when you were on the team, Fibber. What team was that, Bill? What do you mean, what team? I was second blade on the Mumbledy Peg team, wasn't I? <laughs> oh, this is wonderful. Just arrived in town and I meet up with two of my old school day friends. Well, sometimes I... Oh, uh, pardon me. Oh, come right in, Alice, dear. Well, I was just going... Hi, to... Alice. Oh, your daughter, McGee, is amazing resemblance. No, no, Alice isn't our daughter, William. She's just... Oh, not your granddaughter. No. Jeepers, uh, <laughs> I'm not really a relative at all, Mr. Oh, excuse me. Mr. Smith, this is Alice Darling. Alice, shake hands with our old school chum, Bill Smith. Delighted to meet you, Alice. How do you do? Alice is doing more work at the airplane plant, Mr. Smith. She's a welder, Bill. Carrying the torch for several thousand aviators, you might say. <laughs> no relation, eh? I would have thought. Oh, I'm not really related, Mr. Smith. But after all, Mrs. McGee has been just like a mother. Of, I mean, like a big sister. <laughs> Thanks for the reduction in rank, dear. <laughs> and Mr. McGee is sort of a second father to me. In fact, he acts a lot like my real father, especially when I forget my key at night and he has to come down and let me in. Oh, I don't mind, Alice. My gosh, a guy'd have to be pretty bad-tempered to mind waking up out of a sound sleep at 2 a.m., getting out of bed onto the icy floor, stubbing his toe against the door facing, <laughs> falling over an end table, going downstairs to let somebody in who's only lost four door keys so far. 
Uh, did you want to see me about something, Alice? Oh, nothing in particular, thanks. Well, goodbye, Mr. Smith. I suppose I'll see you in the morning. Well, I'm afraid not, Alice. I'm just in town overnight on business, and as soon as I check into a hotel... My I'll... gosh, Bill, I never even asked you where you were staying. Oh, they'll never let you stay at a hotel, Mr. Smith. Oh. <laughs> you might just as well relax. Mr. and Mrs. McGee are the most hospitable people in town, and any time an old friend of theirs shows up... Well... I better be going, I guess. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, Alice. Well, I guess I better be shoving off, too. No, so. sir. You're staying right here tonight, Billy boy. Of course, William. Oh, I couldn't impose on you like this, after all. Come on, I... come on, come on. Give me them suitcases. How's Uncle Dennis's room, Molly? It's all ready, dearie. Fine. Uncle Dennis won't be back for several days. Yeah. Uncle Dennis? Uh, is he the uncle who... Yes, but not as much as he used to. Well, come on. <laughs> and the orchestra playing Temptation. grocery as soon as you can, McGee, if Mr. Smith stays for dinner. Oh, he will. Gee whiz, we can't turn an old schoolmate away. Incidentally, uh, what does this Mr. Smith do, McGee? Search me. I hated to ask him. And there's nothing in his wallet that gives a clue. <laughs> in his wallet? Yeah, nothing but 65 bucks in cash, some credit cards, two mutual tickets from Hialeah, a card with his wife's birthday and wedding anniversary wrote on it, and a recipe for how to make a gimlet. Oh, mm-hmm. a gimlet. Maybe he's a tool maker. Oh, could be. <laughs> Say, uh, McGee, uh, what were you doing going through the man's wallet? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Why, Molly, you know I wouldn't do a thing like that. All that stuff fell out of his wallet when it dropped on the floor when I shook his coat. Oh, well, he... Well, uh, where is he now? He's washing up. Says he'd be right down. He asked me who crocheted them guest towels, and I told him you did, Molly, and he says he'd wipe his hands on his shirt tail before he touched them beautiful things. Oh, my goodness. Those were just some old hats. Come in. Mr. Wellington. Mm, good day, good day. Mrs. McGee, how charming you look. And McGee, how? <laughs> how? See, uh, if 
you two Potawatomis want to make big medicine, the squaw can go chip a few arrowheads. <laughs> not at all, Mrs. McGee. Not at all. I merely called to remind Chairman McGee... Chairman McGee? What am I chairman of now? Doggone it, you guys slap me on every committee that any egghead can think of. I can't come to any meetings tonight, too. No, we have a house guest, Mr. Wellington. An old schoolmate from Peoria. After all these years. Ah, yes. As the fellow said, after he wore bow ties for 15 years, long tie, no see. (laughs) (laughs) But there's nothing like uh, meeting old friends. Now, you take my half-brother. Why? Frankly, I don't want him. (laughs) What what good is half a brother? Try to borrow $20, and what do you get? Ten. Play a game of golf with him, and what does he do? Quits after nine holes. Say, is he the uh, brother that keeps turning his head and winking at you, Mr. Wellington? You know, the one that ran the lighthouse for so many years? Mm, no. No, that is my cousin, Torpid Wellington. Oh, yeah. My cousin once removed, which everyone agrees wasn't often enough. <laughs> well, it must be wonderful to be a half-brother and only have to sit through part of a double feature. <laughs> what does he do, Sig? He is an executive of that factory on Oak Street, the one that manufactures the cedar chests. Oh, yes. Do you know that in 1927, they made only 724 cedar chests? Hmm. But... In 1943, I repeat that, in 1943, they made 4,367. Isn't that some? Some what? Chest expansion. (laughs) Well, try and make the meeting if possible, old fellow. A pound toodaloo to you, Mrs. McGee, and to you, McGee. Ooh. Big chiseler. No, he's nothing of the kind. Mr. Wellington is the soul of honor. You got him two inches too far forward in the shoe, baby. That guy's one of those kinds of... Ah, I certainly feel refreshed. This is a very comfortable home you have here. You own it, Fibber? It's a partnership deal, Bill. Oh, you and Molly? No, us and the FHA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't know what it means to be far from home and run into two old friends like this. Say, you remember that store in uh, in Peoria where us fellas used to hang out, Fibber? Huh? The, uh, you know, the one down on the, right across from the, uh, oh, you know. Oh, the Puff Cigar Store. The Puff Cigar yeah. Store. Oh, I yeah. hadn't thought of that place for years. <laughs> <laughs> ah, those are great old days. Ah, what have you been doing yourselves, anyway? Well, uh, himself here was in vaudeville for a while, Mr. Smith. Vaudeville, huh? Yes, sir. A guy and I by the name of Fred Nittany from Star Rock, Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> Had a great little act. Songs, dances, and comical sayings. Had so many bookings, we never played the same place twice. Ah, those lucky places. And uh, say, tell Mr. Smith the joke you and Fred Nittany always used to do, McGee. Which one, Molly? <laughs> you know the one where you come out in the hip boots and Fred said, what are those? And you say, uh, these are my golf shoes. And he said, golf shoes? And you say, yes, a hole in one. And uh, tell Mr. Smith that one. <laughs> I wish you would. No, I don't want to get those jokes started again. Might want to revive the old act any time now. Must have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Didn't I? Uh, Hey, you remember the title, Molly? Hiya, pal. Hiya there, old... Oh, excuse me. I thought it was somebody else. Come on in, Mr. Wilcox. 
Uh, this is Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith, Mr. Wilcox. How do you do, sir? How are you? Mr. Smith is an old friend of ours, Mr. Wilcox. Knew us back in our old school days, Junior. Well, looks a little young to have been a truant officer that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you're looking nice, Mr. Wilcox. How's everything with you? Oh, wonderful, Molly. Business has been wonderful. Oh, business, 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 business. Don't you ever think of anything but business? Let me think. Nope. What is your business, Miss Wilcox? Oh, dear. Rocket ship for Racine, leaving on track two. <laughs> the Kingsman singing Starwood Mountain. I've got a gal in Starwood Mountain. Hold it down, be She won't come and I won't call her. Hold it down, be Broadcast of the Fibber McGee and Molly Show is a presentation of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Okay, we did it. So, good night, everybody. Make your Lord Jesus Christ watch each one of you out there. Love you all. Party's over. It's time to call it a day. They've burst your pretty balloon and taken the moon. Oh.
it's time to wind up the masquerade just make your mind up the piper must be and dream through the night it seemed to be right just being with him now you must wake up all dreams must end take off your The party's over It's all over My friend Now Hello, everybody. It is Sunday night. Uh, here on the West Coast, it is 11-17. August the 14th, year 2011. It's VJ Day, and I'm back from the BB King Show. And we're going to feature a little bit heard on August the 14th, then we're going to move back to August the 10th, Friday. We'll keep that going up for a while. But first, let's say a Dear Lord, thank you for the blessings of being in the country. Thank you for all the soldiers and family who made such sacrifice for us so many years ago. Bless the families of all of those fighters, Lord. We ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let's go back and look at the celebration that happened for a little while. And let's see here. I think this is it. I would say to the house, as I said. Thank you, KVOO in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there, ladies and gentlemen, you have a radio's eye view of V.J. Day in our great and colorful Southwest. Back to our mobile unit in New York again for more Manhattan color from Ben Grower. 
At the mobile unit in Times Square, and the color is as variegated and kaleidoscopic as it has been all evening, constantly changing and shifting with streams of people up and down Broadway and 7th Avenue as they converge here at this famous apex, which is the heart of the Great White Way. There's no change. In fact, it's just the way it was, only more so. Bells, whistles, streamers, confetti, excitement, joy in the air as a nation celebrates a victory for democracy around the world. We've been interviewing so many servicemen that I'm going to ask this gentleman, uh, a civilian, what's your name, sir? Uh, Harold Jones. Harold Jones, where do you live, Mr. Jones? I live in Manhattan Island. I see by that service button you were in the last war. I was. Did you happen to see a celebration uh, Armistice Day here? No, I was very unfortunate. I was in camp. How does this one hit you? Oh, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Wonderful. Thanks, Mr. Jones. And now, what's your name, sir? Uh, George McCoy. George McCoy, where are you from? I'm a cosmopolite. A what? Uh, I'll get around. I see. Well, uh, what uh, what were you doing on Pearl Harbor Day? Uh, I was uh, working the other side of the street up here by the Aston. What do you mean working the other side? Uh, I was doing a sidewalk pitch like you. What, with a microphone? That's right. George the Real McCoy. Uh, check, oh, check. I recognize your fellow. George the Real McCoy, the noted broadcaster. So, well, George, go ahead. Say something. Well, uh, thanks very much. Is there anybody here from out of town? Yes, I am. Uh, just a minute, just a minute. The Marines have landed. Step up here, yes, Marine. Uh, what's your name, by the way? James Morris, sir. Uh, where do you come from, James? Boston, Massachusetts, sir. Uh, don't call me, sir. Uh, Boston, right? Yes, sir. Uh, what did you do before you uh, were in the Marines? School, sir. A uh, school? Yes. Uh, how far in school did you go? High school. High school? Uh, how many points have you got? <laughs> I don't know, sir. <laughs> how long have you been in the Marines? Well, it's gone on 50 and out, sir. Uh, I see that you have plenty of uh, that salad dressing on your... Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, you've been in the Philippines and all over in the, in the Pacific, right? That's right, sir. Uh, by the way, uh, what are you going to do after your discharge? I don't know, sir. I'd like to go to school, I guess. Well, you want to take advantage of this uh, uh, refresher course, GI Bill of Rights, you might say? Yes, sir, I would if I'm going to get it. Uh, and what would you like to uh, major in? Oh, engineering and chemistry, if I, I think. And what college would you like to go to? Harvard. Harvard? Yes, would you like sir. to go to Harvard for the accent? No, I see. I think the education will do me pretty good, too. Oh, you have the accent. I, I see. Uh, this is an educational program, and you're a Marine, and you've been around. Uh, where uh, are the most beautiful gals in the world? Philadelphia. That's a tough job with all the jazz. But I say Washington, sir. Uh, Washington, sir? Uh, uh, you got a gal on her? Yes, sir. What's her name? Pinkle, sir. What's her first name? Betty. Betty what? Betty Pinkle. I hope she's listening. Thank you very much, brother. Ah, and now we have a real walkie-talkie. A wet. A step right up here, dear. And uh, what is your name? Captain Suspender. And uh, where do you come from? Philadelphia. What's your serial number? A318659. And why are you on Broadway tonight? Well, we just got out of work, and so we celebrated a little. Uh, who's we? Well, my girlfriend's and I, we're Just a minute. Uh, you're one of these wax. What's your name? Retail Carter. And what's your rank? Private. Private, where do you come from? Living in Pennsylvania. Living in Pennsylvania. And here's another wax. What's your name? Corporal on the Fitzgerald. Where do you come from? Boston. Boston. And then? Uh... Sergeant Anna Vogel, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Well, now, that takes care of all your girlfriends, right? So, um... Uh, you have points in the uh, wax, don't you? Yes. Sir. How many points do you have? Fourteen. Fourteen. How many do you, do you need to get out? Forty-four. Forty-four. Uh, what did you do before you enlisted? I was a welder. Oh, I, but you enlisted. Uh, I enlisted. You were a welder. Are you married? No. Well, you haven't been welded yet. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, marriages, are you in favor of gangplank marriages? Well, not exactly. Hmm? That not... depends. Oh, that depends. Uh, do you uh, think a man should wait uh, uh, before he's... Uh, uh, been, uh, been back quite a while before she could marry? Well, not quite a while, but a little while, anyway. Uh, how does the, uh, uh, the peace affect you? What are you going to do when you get out of the wax? Might get married, I guess. You're going to get married? Uh-huh. Would you marry a soldier? Sailor. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Have you any message for America? 
peace. That's all we want. Peace. Thank you very much. Now, where's uh, a soldier here? Where is he? Where is he? Johnny Florida. Oh, here he is. Where do you come from? Texas. Vermont, Texas. And what's your name? Johnny Parker. And uh, Johnny, what did you do before you got in the Army? I was chief clerk to district court. Oh, I, I see. A uh, criminal court? Yes. Do you, uh, do you think crime pays? Heck no. <laughs> oh, it pays you, doesn't it? Well, a little bit. Not enough. Have you been on Broadway? Oh, no. I've been on here lots of time. Oh, I see. Do you like New York? It's a pretty good place. Huh? It's a pretty good place. Just a pretty good place. Well, thank yeah. you very much, brother. Do you like broadcasting, McCoy? Oh, very fine, Ben. I think it's here to stay. Thanks for the use of the mic. Fine. Use the other side of the street, please. Thank you, George the Real McCoy. A few informal step-up brother interviews by George the Real McCoy from our NBC mobile unit parked at Times Square in the midst of the, it seems, never-ending celebration as we greet the dawn of peace in New York City. Uh... If I'm a little punchy, it's because I'm a little punchy. We've been here for seven hours, and this is going to go on throughout the night if I'm any guesser of enthusiasm, vigor, joy, and jubilation. Growl at the NBC mobile unit, and now to continue our coast-to-coast coverage, we leap 3,000 miles to the Pacific shores and say, go ahead, NBC in Hollywood. From the Hollywood canteen in Hollywood, California, the place that's been the home for millions of GIs from the world over, and they're all celebrating here tonight. And are they happy? Listen to this. <laughs> and now, the young lady that has devoted so much of her time, the president of the Hollywood canteen, Miss Betty Davis. Betty Davis. We've all waited a long time for this glorious day, and thank God it's here at last. Don't you think the song would be very appropriate now? Something like Happy Days or Here Again? Everybody join in. interview a couple of the kids, boys and gals, have been kicking around here in the uniforms for a few years. The first boy up here is a Marine. Carmen DeVivo, I understand you're from New York. Is that right, Carmen? Yes, sir. Syracuse, New York. How long have you been in, Carmen? A little over three years. And where have you been? And uh, most of my time's been spent in the Solomons. Uh, I see some stars on you there. Will you tell us about them? Well, we have one for the New Georgia campaign, one for the Bougainville campaign, and one other for the Bismarck Archipelago. How do you feel about tonight? I love it. You love it. Now, now we're going to have a song. We have a quartet. Miss Jane Powell, 
Miss Eve Arden, chief pharmacist mate Dave Morgan, and uh, start with that again, Granger. Corporal Granger. All right, uh, what are we going to sing? Smiles. Smiles, fine and dandy. Take it. <laughs> Arden. And now, here's that beautiful, glamorous, what else can I say, Miss Alexis Smith. <laughs> Miss Smith, will you take over my job and interview Corporal Robert Lindquist? Hello, Corporal. How do you do, Miss Smith? How are you? <laughs> oh, well, Tell me, where are you from? I'm from Chicago, Illinois. That's <laughs> and what are the service ribbons there? Well, there aren't many of them. I have a few more coming. <laughs> just been, I've just been in the States about uh, three days. Just came from Tinian and Mariana's. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. You on your way home? Well, this is where my folks are living now, so this is really my home now. How do you feel about today? Terrific. <laughs> That's wonderful. Ask the gentleman how many trips he's had over Japan. He has little inside information. He's a B-29 boy. Will you tell us a little uh, about that? Well, I have just uh, 15 missions over Japan now. I came back for a little special training. <laughs> Thank you very kindly, Miss Smith. And now, from the fair sex in the uniform. Huh? How do you feel? Oh, I'll be fine, Jim. Grand, grand. And uh, I've lost your name. I'm sorry, I'm all Helen excited. Helen Rossler. Helen Rossler. And where are you from, Helen? All the way from New York. Just arrived this afternoon. From New York? Thank you kindly. Maestro, can we have all anxiety? What do you say? All right, here we go. Eastern Wartime.
to God. This day is the father of great anniversaries. Men and saints shall picnic together on 14 August down more years than you or I shall see. So say it tonight with saluting guns. Say it with roses. Say it with a hand clasp, a drink, a prayer. Say it any way you want, but say it. Say it! of Victory, written, directed, and produced by Norman Corwin, and spoken by Orson Welles. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Okay, we're going to now move back over to Friday. August 10th, 1945. We're going to see, we're waiting to find out the Japanese are going to surrender. So we point a couple of things that I heard on the 14th. We're going to move up to 3 o'clock in the afternoon with the soap operas. It took Otto Schultz a long time to make up. We delayed. Okay, back. Broadcasting Company. We'll be back Monday with more of the same fine drama and hymns of all churches. This is Charles Lyon, your host on the General Mills Hour, saying, see you then. This is the National Broadcasting Company. p.m. G-R-U-E-N Gruen Precision Watch Time. The Curvex, accurate, dependable. W-E-A-F, New York. Wonderful ivory snow. Yes, wonderful ivory snow. Ivory Snow presents A Woman of America. <laughs> Ivory Snow brings you the story of Prudence Dane, a woman of America whose courage and faith are the glorious heritage of all women of America today. Okay, 129 here on the West Coast. I think we'll turn it back to the automation system, everybody. Hope you have a good Monday, a little dwelling. And everything goes right, we'll celebrate Frank Brzee's birthday this weekend. Uh, Frank will be turning 82. How about that? So we'll celebrate Friday and give Frank a call Saturday. So it should be a lot of fun. So, with that. Show me the good Lord Jesus Christ bless you. This is Yesterday USA. Love you all. It's time to call it a day. They've burst your pretty balloon and taken the moon away. It's time to wind up. 
Oh, oh. 